everybody. Welcome to Full Marks. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And we're going to be talking today about Go West. Go West, the song by the Pet Shop Boys. Is that right? I thought it was uh, an album by the Village People. Am I wrong? Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, very good. It's one one album that's one by a band that's closely related to uh, gay subculture. And the other is? A band that's closely related to gay subculture. There you go. And the movie is... Closely related to. <laughs> is it right? No, it's okay. Not. <laughs> well, the important thing is you've started things awkwardly. I like to do and that. And we can only go up from here. Uh, if you're listening to the show for the first time, thanks for joining us. It's an odd choice to start this far in, but okay. Uh, what uh, what we do on the show is my friend uh, David here is a fan of uh, the Marx Brothers, which is a good thing if you're doing a Marx Brothers podcast. What a terrible thing it would be if you weren't. Uh, and uh, is uh, has watched every one of the movies and is going to be supplying some context to where the Marx Brothers were in Mm -hmm. history and uh, lots of trivia and interesting bits. Uh, Let's not build it up too much. Okay, we've already set the bar low with your your start to this, so don't worry about it. I'm trying to hold on to the remaining listeners. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I uh, make my living as a comedian and writing uh, for uh, cartoons for the New Yorker Mad Magazine. I used to write... Uh, the Simpsons and Futurama comics, and I like the Marx Brothers, but I have not watched all the movies. I know about them more culturally than uh, being like a direct fan that has like consumed everything. Yeah, as a as, as someone who's grown up in North America, you have to be aware of the Marx Brothers, even if you just know them from cartoon form uh, in, in in parodies and whatnot. Sure. So, uh, so we've been going linearly through all the Marx Brothers films, and that has brought us now to go west. Yes, 1940. We're up to 1940. We started in 1929 with uh, the Coconuts, and now we're at Go West, 1940, so 11 years into their career. And it seems and pretty. Where, where are they now? It seems pretty amazing, doesn't it, how much has happened to them in 11 years when you think, well, it's only been 11 years. Yeah. And we, then all these movies had so many, you know, career ups and downs, you know, with having, you know, working for Paramount and kind of creating this template of their own movies and then having that sort of fall apart with Duck Soup. And then having Thalberg revive their careers in a way with A Night of the Opera. And then him passing away during A Day of the Races and kind of leaving them high and dry. And then, you know, I think that they were kind of at a loss of from where to go from there. You sure. know, they, they, you know, Groucho and Harpo were maybe tired of making movies, but they needed to keep doing them in order to keep Chico with a house over, you know, the roof over his head. I don't think a house over his head would be very good, but a roof over his head. Right. And so, you know, they re-signed to MGM. Do we have a gambling addiction to thank for all these extra movies? <laughs> yes, we do. Wow. Yeah, we do. That feels bad that it, I that I have to thank that for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate having the films. I'm sorry that that is the case. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is. Uh, it is a sad part of. But you know, the weird part of it is, is that you're feeling sorry for a person who never felt sorry for himself that we know of. You know, like he never. Well, yes, he never expressed any regret for whatever. Okay. Vagaries his life took. Sure. Uh, due to yeah. his own. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean. <laughs> yes, that doesn't you know? necessarily mean that it was happy for him or for everyone else. Uh, so for Go- that clown was always laughing. <laughs> I'm sure they were happy all the time. <laughs> right. Well, he had a smile painted on his face. Anyway, he, he was happy. he's just going to the psychiatrist's office, and he's. Oh, I just heard him yell, "I am Pagliacci," <laughs> and he's coming out. And he seems to be crying. Okay. Well, fair enough. But continue <laughs> with your story. <laughs> so for Go West. Like like I say, the Marxists had re-signed with MGM. I think that, you know, it seemed like the safe bet. They weren't that interested in taking chances, so they were turned to a place where they felt comfortable. All right. 
they I'm quite certain that they weren't getting as good a deal as they were getting with the Night of the Opera Day of the Races. They weren't getting the 15% of the gross of the films that they were making. They were getting paid a strict $250,000 per film, plus a $50,000 bonus that the movie came in under a million dollars. Right. And Harpo and uh, Groucho were, uh, were, were managing uh, Chico's money at this point? Or were they yeah. just saying, have at it? No, there was an attempt, and I don't know how successful it was, but there had been an attempt to set up a sort of a trust, some sort of way of paying money, a certain percentage of the money they earned through MGM into a, a fund that Ch- Chico could access but couldn't couldn't um, completely empty. Understood. So how successful that was, I don't know, because I, he was probably a pretty convincing person. Mm-hmm. So for Go West, I guess Mervyn Leroy, who had produced At the Circus, even though he was head of production for MGM, he took upon himself to do uh, kind of personally be responsible for production for At the Circus, kind of the same way Thalberg had personally overseen all the movies that he was producing as well as being head of production at MGM. But that may have been too much work for, for Leroy. And so he passed on Go West. And what happened was Jack Cummings, who was Louis B. Mayer's nephew, was assigned the uh, production role. And in some ways, it was pretty good. He didn't have any definite ideas of what he wanted, but he seemed to have an idea that what happened before was pretty good and that they shouldn't veer too far away from what made the earlier film successful. So, for instance, he he um, he did he actually went back and kind of looked at an idea that had come around during Thalberg's time, which was, I don't know if you remember when we were talking about A Day at the Races, Thalberg had actually decided that that the that the way that the Marx Brothers preferred to do le- you know to only do one movie a year wasn't really necessary that they could do more than one movie a year mm. as long you know as long as it was well organized around their schedules and so when he was doing Day of the Races he he assigned um, George Seaton and Robert Prosh the job and George Oppenheimer as well the job of writing a script based around a sanitarium and that was going to be a Day at the Races. Before it was a day of the races, obviously. It would have been a different name if races hadn't somehow become part of the... Horse mm. racing hadn't somehow become part of the story. For But he also, at the same time, had another movie in production, which was going to be a Western written by Burke Kalmar and Harry Ruby, who had worked on Horse Feathers and on uh, Duck Soup, mm. and also had done... And both both George Seaton and Robert Parrish and Burke Kalmar and Harry Ruby had all done punch-ups on The Night of the Opera. They worked separately from each other and didn't know each other was working on the movie, ah, but they okay. had done, you know, punch, punch ups to try and, you know, just to, because that's what the Marx Brothers liked sure. was to have lots of voices and lots of different jokes and stuff that could be used or discarded or whatever. Right. And so theirs was a Western uh, based around a rodeo that had a, a map to a gold mine as part of the plot. Now, when Thalberg died during a day of the races, that script was tossed away, like tossed out and... Wasn't and I guess it wasn't really considered for this remake, and I don't think it was referred to for the remake or for mm-hmm. this new Go West either. The only thing they kept was the name Go West, which had been Kalman Ruby's title for their sure. for their. Um, it's and a strong title. It, it is a good title. Yeah, yeah, it's evocative. So should you think it should have been the Marx Brothers Go West or just Go West? Is it? No, it's it should like, just be Go West. I disagree. I think the Marx Brothers Go West because it's but like the, them, and then I, put them in the title, and there you go. I guess, but there's been no other movie that has the Marx Brothers in the title. I understand that. It just feels feels like, meh, but that's just my opinion. But I mean, their name would have been on the title, so it would have been like it. Was it would say next. it would say that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay, all right. There, it's been suggested that uh, there's a Kalman Ruby song called "Go West, Young Man," that Groucho sings in Copacabana, the film Copacabana. 
And it's been suggested that that song was actually written by Kamran and Ruby for their version of Go West. And they All just right. recycled it into, um, into uh, Copacabana. So instead of returning to this script, Cummings teamed up Irving Brecker with uh, for another writer whose name was Dor Sherry, uh, who was kind of at that time sort of um, an beginning, sort of starting as a, as a screenwriter at MGM. He had a little bit of work under his belt, but not a lot. He'd done some Broadway and, he'd, and he was just kind of starting in screenwriting. And so they turned in a script that was rejected as well. And it was decided then that, that uh, Brecker would just do it on his own, the same way he'd done without the circus. Um, Dorsheri went on to uh, become head of production at MGM and eventually took over as the head of MGM. Took over for Louis B. Mayer when Mayer objected to Dorsheri's uh, ideas. He they both went to to uh, Joseph Joseph Shank, who was the head of Lowe's, who were the money people in New York, mm-hmm. and Shank sided with Dorsheri and Louis B. Mayer was kicked out, mm. and Dorsheri took over. It wasn't that a successful move, though, to be honest. But I don't think the way MGM was designed at that time into the 50s, it probably wasn't designed to succeed anyway, because the movie industry was changing so much. that The whole idea of a factory and a big, giant monolith that made, you know, 50 movies a year wasn't really working anymore, so they needed to pare back. Anyhow. Were they the only major comedy team that was going on that was, like, comparable? Like a group of uh, a group of fellas doing a, doing a comedy thing on a regular basis? No, there's the Ritz Brothers. How many Ritz Brothers are there? There was three. Three? Okay. There was... Uh, Laurel and Hardy were still working at yeah. that time. Yeah. Comedy duo, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, Three Stooges were doing stuff. Okay. Probably doing shorts at that time. Yeah, yeah. But, I would say it's probably But the they shorts. would have been around. This is before Abbott and Costello. Uh, Wheeler and Wolsey were probably still doing movies. Good. We've mentioned them now. That's sure. good. We have to mention them every show. <laughs> I kind of set you up for that, but that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, but yes. Were they the major team? I would say yes. I would say. Yeah, I think so know. too. Yeah. And I'd say that they were a team that... Hollywood kept thinking we're going to be superseded, and yet never were. Always, mm-hmm. you know, always seemed to keep their head above water. Uh, and there was no team that, then artistically, was better than them. I don't know about financially. I can't imagine the Ritz Brothers movies were now, much the, better. Now the than, Ritz, the Ritz Brothers. Uh, I don't really know them very well. I can okay. only know their name. Well, oh, all right. I was going to ask you if the Ritz Brothers uh, all generally did the same thing, or if they were strong, distinct characters. Because it feels like. The benefit of the your Marx Brothers is you get three mm-hmm. very distinct character types, yeah. and you can do three different types of comedy and keep shifting back and forth. And you want some physical? That's great. Now here's some verbal. Yeah. Now here's your malpropisms. Now here's your you know your sexual double entendres. Sure. And now we're gonna have a con scene. Uh, it's, yeah, you can do a lot with with them. Yeah. Whereas like Laurel and Hardy, they both have the same goal. Though one's slightly dumber than the other one. Yeah. But they're yeah. basically the same. And they work together in tandem. They're trying to work together yeah. and screwing yeah. up. Whereas the Marx Brothers are always uh, going their own paths in their own That's way. Right. And they can be at, they can be together. They can be at odds with each other. Yeah. And then the early films, less films, the, the, or sorry, later films, less so. But the early films also had an element of erudition to them. There's that sophisticated humor as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of jokes about, you know, you know, uh, Roth is is you know wa- waxing Roth and tell tell <laughs> Roth to wax you know whatever just something like that where it's yeah. just using like you know kind of sure. obscure verbal humor as part of the as part of the mix and that's also a an appealing element to it it did it did kind of disappear in the later films as they tried to become more mainstream and they kind of lost that Broadway New York 
smarty yeah. pants element to them. It's, but there was that New York smarty pants aspect to them that that in the early films. It's it's almost like, and I'm sorry to take you off track for just a second no, here. On our on our sister podcast, Sneaky Dragon, we were talking uh, about how. The twelve thirty uh, talk shows are always like edgier and funnier to us than the eleven thirty ones. Yes, and it feels like the Marx Brothers have gone from their twelve thirty show sure. to their. They've stopped doing the late late night, and now they're doing the mm-hmm. Tonight Show. Sure, because it's let's mainstream it up. That's right, and part of the problem of that, of course, is that you start off making small comedies, but as your career progresses, the, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right, and it gets harder to to match what you're doing to the budget you're getting. Absolutely, I you would s- I would say, and without jumping too far ahead, when I saw this film, I went, "That's expensive," mm-hmm. and "That's expensive" means we're locked into the joke. So you can't correct the joke later to make it better as you could if this is all taking place in a hotel. Sure, sure. you know, now they'll just do as many jokes as possible. We're going to use the best ones, mm-hmm. but like if we if we've done an elaborate train bit, yeah, we're doing that because we paid for the train. We're going to do it, sure. no matter how funny it is or sure. not. Yeah, sure, and I. And Good I would, for spectacle, not not the best for well, comedy. It's interesting, yeah. And spectacle sometimes doesn't work for comedy. Like nope. take it outside of Marx Brothers for a second and think of Monty Python's Meaning of Life, which is a very spectacle-filled movie, but I don't think it's their strongest film because it's it's so big. Sometimes the humor gets lost in its bigness. Whereas right. a movie like Holy Grail, which is done Two very guys cheaply, with coconuts. That's right. Yeah. It's done on the cheap. You know, has that element of. It's the smart element of of well, comedy working it, uh, despite itself. And as know? we were saying, the difference between the the, the twelve thirty and the eleven thirty sometimes is your budget is your strength. Your limitations sure. are your strength. So and no one's paying attention to you. That's right. With when David Letterman was doing his thing, he couldn't do a monologue that was as long as Carson, so he had to do other things, and that became his strength. And yeah, yeah. the Marx Brothers were limited to. We don't have that much money, so we're gonna do, you know, this. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna do the coconuts, and we're gonna do it all in a hotel, and <laughs> yeah. uh, there you are. Yeah. And then now we got some dough. <laughs> we, we'll see how that have, works out. Now we have an MGM budget behind us. But please continue. I will. Thanks. So, like I said, so it was decided that Brecker would write at the circus by himself. And the problem with that, I think, is you know, if you watch the movies at the circus and Go West, is that. It doesn't allow for that kind of manic joke aspect of the Marx Brothers. It's basically a lot of one-liners without... It doesn't have that kind of absurdist element to them as well, where things can take kind of a weird turn and, and you know, they can have like a double-talk conversation about a viaduct and viaduct and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of lost with with, with Brecker. That's not his right. strength as a, as, a, as a writer, for one thing. But I think he, you know, and you kind of see Groucho's gets fed a lot of lines, Chico not so much. And Harpo just says a little bit of stuff. And you could see, because he, you know, Brecker was strong verbally, but less strong, you know, in terms of, of visual com- comedy and stuff like that. So there's this kind of, maybe Groucho has too much importance in terms of the scenes and, you know, his speaking lines and stuff like that over Ch- Chico. Uh, ideally, there should be balance, especially because Chico would get upset and jealous if, if Groucho had too many jokes in a, mm. in a thing. Yeah, I was wondering if a bit of the thing with Harpo was just he's getting on in years, and that's the hardest on the physical comedian in mm-hmm. the act. Sure. I mean, they were having him in uh, Night at the Opera doing trapeze scenes. Sure. You know, sure. and it's like, and, and I, how old was he then? He was in his 30s or? No, he was in his uh, 50s. He was in his 50s doing trapeze scenes. Yeah. So how old is he in this generally? Like late 50s? Um. Well, it's only... He's still been 50s, probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, still, you're in your, uh, as a person who's in my 50s. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, only so often you want to be hanging off the <laughs> yes. trapeze uh, upside down. You're not as elastic as you used to be. Yeah. 
even though he does do some elastic things in this. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, uh, Brecker basically, and also Brecker basically lifts the plot. I'm sorry, instead of using the rodeo plot that Kalmar and Ruby had devised and sort of making it his own, he basically just lifted the plot from the Laurel and Hardy film Way Out West, which is a common plot. I'm not going to say that, you know, it's a totally original plot when Laurel and Hardy did it. But I mean, it had only been done two years before this movie was being going into production. And it's basically the same plot that, uh, you know, there's a will or not a will. There's a deed that ends up in the hands of the bad guy. Yep. And then the, the characters have to go and get it. Sure. And it works for Lauren and Hardy because their, their comedy is goal oriented, you know, and so the two characters who are going to do something, the Marx brothers aren't really going to do something. That's not where their characters are strong at. And so you end up having to, to take this plot and make them real people reacting to dangerous situations like real people rather than as the Marx Brothers. Uh, and you think to yourself, you know, room service, and we were talking, we've had a discussion from a few people about whether they should have, you know, shed their characters for room service and just played it straight. You could almost say the same thing for Go West. They might as well just shed their characters and play it straight because there's very little left of the Marx Brothers characters in, in Go West. Hmm. To me, anyway. Okay. I, I don't I don't agree with that, but okay. 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 Uh, so once again, it was decided that Eddie Bazell would direct this film. He hadn't wrecked at the circus. He hadn't done anything great to it either, but he hadn't destroyed it. Yeah. So he just was a function. He was a functionary. That was good enough, I guess. Uh, and Grocho and, and Grocho and, and Harpo, you know, before even like a night of the opera and stuff like that, Grocho had a say in who was writing the movies. You know, this, this had been taken away from him by this point. They were, you know, the producer was one who was in charge of hiring who was writing the movies. He had very little say, although Groucho did like Irving Brecker as a, as a writer. But during the filming, Bazell tried, he, he tried to control the way the Marx Brothers behaved on set to stop them from wasting time by goofing around and having fun and stuff like that. He stopped laughing at them. Oh. So when they made a joke on, even when they were improvising on camera, he would not laugh. Oh. Boy. He would just keep a straight face, and oh, it really, dear. it really dampened their spirits. Yeah, and kind of flattened their performance. I think. I don't. Know, I don't like saying things are dumb, but that was that's dumb. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, that's driving the car with no gas in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to encourage your comedians to be funny, right? Because you're on a you're on a set. It's so long the day, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, it, the only thing you get out of it is except for money. But you get that later. <laughs> uh, is the is the laughter? That's yeah. your, that's your fuel. Sure. Jeez. Sure. Uh, in a letter uh, from October 1939, uh, Groucho was writing to his friend Arthur Sheikman, who wrote some of the earlier Marx Brothers films, uh, that shooting was set to begin on the film in three to four weeks' time. So sometime in November, early December, they're intending to start shooting Go West. Instead, uh, it didn't start shooting until five months later. Mm. And part of the delay was that they decided, Cummings decided, the Marx Brothers wanted this to happen, and Cummings agreed to it, that they would go do a tour of the material to test it which is what they didn't get to do without the circus. They got to do with Go West. So they uh, mounted uh, a uh, tour that was titled Scenes from Go West, and it played to 103 audiences uh, with five shows a day. Wow. Starting in uh, Joliet, Illinois, on April 29, 1940. They moved on to Toledo, Detroit, and Chicago with a final performance at the Paramount Theater in Los Angeles on May 27, 1940. And partway through the tour, Cummings brought in Nat Perrin, who had last worked with the Marx Brothers 
I'm pretty sure he worked on horse feathers. I know he worked on monkey business. I'm pretty sure he worked on horse feathers as well. Okay. That's probably the last time he had worked with the Marx Brothers. So they brought him in just to do some help with the punch up on the jokes and stuff like that during the tour. So he and Brecker would watch the show and then they'd go back, you know, and go behind and then they would figure out what worked, what didn't work, what jokes got laughs. Right. How, how they should time it, you know, when the, if laughs, if laughter covered up, you know, jokes during the yeah, overlap. On yeah. Things. So yeah, they want to make sure. sure that that didn't happen. Just stuff like that. I'm glad they got like, uh, laughs. I mean, that's also mm-hmm. a nice thing, a nice feel for them. Sure. You know, to, sure. to keep going if they're not getting it on set later. And then unlike at the circus, Grocho insisted that Brecker be kept on payroll for Go West. So he was on set during the movie to make, uh, changes to the script if needed, if, it was felt that scenes, you know, jokes needed punching up, or if even if Grocho just got bored of the lines that he said and wanted something different, sure. say, and that was quite common with Grocho. I mean, I, again, I assume you couldn't uh, you couldn't rewrite any of the climactic scenes because they're such big physical pieces mm-hmm. that you can't do anything yeah. with those. Yeah, most likely for sure, would be all carefully planned out. So the, having Brecker on set though led to one problem, which is because Bazell was not laughing at what the Marx Brothers were, were doing, they were sort of turning to Brecker to figure out how to. To you know, to discuss line readings and stuff like that. Yeah, which Bazell took personally as an affront to him. Ugh. and got really mad and stormed off the set one day, and it was just this case of you know these t- tender egos. So dumb. Uh, so shooting was slated to begin the first of July, nineteen forty. So a month after they basically a month after they finished the tour, Grotto said, giving us time to forget everything we we <laughs> learned. Uh, during that time, Brecker worked the script. You know, just stuff that scenes that hadn't been set on the tour. He just worked stuff around that. Um, and Groucho felt that the reason that they were postponing the movie was that the executives at MGM had no confidence in the material and were postponing it just because they were just putting off the inevitable. Uh, I don't know how true that was because he was took a very dim view of these films. Now, at the time, were, and maybe you don't know this, yeah. were Westerns very popular? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this just seems like it's a good cross-marketing thing. Of yeah, just yeah. Like, Westerns, know, were, yeah. Were, Westerns were big, for okay. sure. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, what happened then was that the executives in the office stepped in, of course, and started expressing, you know, these little concerns about this and that of the movie, little little things here and there, you know, causing scenes to be writ- rewritten. And so the script became this like hodgepodge of all these different color pages and things. There's all these rewrites and rethings and revisions were happening. And one executive decided that the budget was too large for the film, and he wanted to cut two hundred thousand dollars from the finale, from the train, the train sequence of the movie. Okay. And so uh, Groucho, Harpo, and Brecker had to go and convince this guy that no. You're not going to save money by cutting the climactic scene of the movie. Like you're going to lose money in the theater by wrecking the film. And so they, you know, they tried to convince this guy that uh, we needed we need these gags. Like you can't just cut all the yeah. fun out of the movie. Uh, so shooting finally began in mid July and continued into October. Now the music for the film uh, was written uh, for the film. Uh, they paired uh, the same lyricist Gus Kahn, who was kind of a old time lyricist. He'd worked for a long time. Uh, with a Polish composer named Bratislaw Kapper, who'd also contribu- contributed to A Night of the Opera. He wrote um, the music for Kosi Kosa. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then also Kahn worked with composer-arranger Roger Edens uh, on the uh, on that song, uh, which is the one about, is it called Riding Along? Sounds about right, I yeah. I what it's called now, sorry. And, you know uh, that song? Yeah. That riding song. The, yeah, yeah, it's a song. Uh, Ride in the Range, that's what there it's called. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And so... Yeah, Greedens is kind of an interesting guy because he went on to uh, be a huge part of Arthur Freed's musical unit at MGM. So he's basically like responsible for for getting rehearsing, uh, helping the singers, t- training people to sing songs, 
composing and arranging songs for the movies and stuff like that. So yeah, I had a big part of like, you know, all the movies you love, Singing in the Rain and Bandwagon cool. and everything. Um, so yeah, Con and Eden's contributed Ride in the Range and Con and C Capper contributed uh, the song Lulu Bell Sings, You Can't Argue with Love. And then a solo song for John Carroll, who played Terry, yeah. uh, called As If I Didn't Know, which was filmed, but was uh, cut from the film uh, for whatever reason. And there you go. I don't think anyone was like, oh, I wish he had another song. No, no one left the film going like, you know what? I, you know what this needed <laughs> that guy having like a solo another, song. Another no, what's he really sequence. feel about this whole thing? But what's weird is if you look if you look in the credits for the movie, there's a bunch of actors who are credited with specialty parts during that song. Oh, and so I wonder what the specialty parts were. Were there dancers going on? Was it like a dance sequence? Hmm. No one, I don't know, because it's gone. Maybe a dancing pantomime horse. It's gone, gone, gone. So uh, we can talk about the movie. Hey, let's do that. Okay. Uh, well, let's start with the with the very beginning. It starts with uh, the quote of uh, who 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 originally said "Go West." Who do they uh, attribute that to again? Do you know? It is a famous quote from. Uh, gee, I forgot to write down who said. Anyway, it. it's a famous quote. <laughs> So famous that shame on you for not knowing it by heart out there. We're not going to pander yeah, we're not and pretend and, and pretend. We all know what it is. Yeah. And I'm not going to insult no, your intelligence gonna. by saying that. And then they, and, uh, they, <laughs> okay. well, it has a little tag at the end of just like, you know, and here are the men that made him regret saying, saying it. So corny. That's the thing. You started with a corny joke. Yeah. No. It's Start like a silent film joke is what it is, actually. That's what it feels like. One of those kind of like intertitle cards that come up just before the movie starts and it gives you that little, kind of corny joke and yeah. you're just like Neh. yeah if it does if the if your first joke isn't getting a laugh in a comedy cut it yeah. you can't get this kind of laugh as your first laugh horace uh -huh. horace greeley just popped into my head that's who said that famous quote horace are, you, are you not greeley. thinking of horse greeley the uh famous horse, the horse. who was also a philosopher <laughs> no, no i think he might have known math too but i think that was that was fake but he did he was a philosopher Okay, so we do, so we so we start off yeah. uh, it, it starts off at the train station am i mm -hmm. am i correct uh, yeah, it opens with an established shot of the rain, the train, the train station. Lots of people running around and stuff like that. Yep. I, when I, I looked at that and I went like, "That's too many extras. Mm -hmm. We do not need this many extras here no. at all." This no. is that was my that was my start of worry. <laughs> First of all, like pe people had told me, okay, after after day at the races, it goes downhill. And to be fair, like uh, room service wasn't my cup of tea, but I, I haven't not, I haven't minded. You know, like uh, circus and At stuff. the circus is pretty good. It was fine. Yeah. You know, and so I was like, okay, lowering way down the expectations. And sometimes you see red flags. And when I saw the sheer amount of extras, I was like, oh, this is not money well spent. <laughs> Too much. Too yes. much business in the background because you're going to do some comedy now in the foreground and I'm going to be distracted. Yeah. Yeah. You so don't need it. Yeah, you don't, don't need, it. need that many extras. You don't need it at all. Trim it down. Mm -hmm. Trim it down. Yeah. Just Bring the fellas up. Yeah. Think of the Tootsie Fritzy scene from Day of the Races, which was a big movie. Big, yeah. Lots of stuff happening in that film. But that sequence has no one in the background at all. It's as if everyone, no one's gambling at all that day. Mm -hmm. Like they're right by these, the wickets for, you know, where they're going, you're going to go get your, uh, pay, pay for your That's bets right. and stuff like that. And there's no one, no one at all. I'm going to just say in general, let me just, uh, before, uh, that uh, I still I did enjoy this I did enjoy this movie. It was nice seeing the fellas. It was okay. nice seeing the fellas. If be you want, the let's, fellas. Yeah, let's do a general talk. Yeah, sure, gener generally sure. I would say like I, I I thought they were slaves to money by the end, doing uh, a genre or a style uh, that wasn't necessarily them and to mm -hmm. their strengths. Yeah. Uh, I could see like it's a, a situation comedy. Well, yeah, when I'm seeing them at the end doing all this physical yeah. business, it feels like oh, like a Harold Lloyd or someone would be. So good at, at at this kind of stuff on a train. Yeah, 
it's not necessarily it's them just running around going gah and it's like nah tight yeah. keep it tight yeah uh but uh, but in general i thought they were themselves and it's enjoyable to see them. It's just enjoyable to see them bouncing off each other. It's just a, it's a treat. It is a treat. You're right. You know, it's as they, it's as they say, it's cold pizza. It's still pizza, <laughs> right? You know, uh, even though you're used to a hot slice, there's, it's, it's, it's all right. And like fr- from the get go, you know, it seems like they're being themselves and it's a treat seeing, you know, them all. It's weird when I'm reading a little bit about this and people complain about Groucho's toupee mm, yeah. and I'm like, the guy's got a painted on mustache. What does the fake hair on his? How is that a flaw? Yeah. Who cares? It's. I, it, it, and I thought it was more obvious in at the circus than I than in Go West actually. Right. I think it's a, a better hairpiece that he has it. In yeah. His phone. Uh, but are you worried he doesn't look realistic now? Yeah. With that fake toupee <laughs> that took you over the edge, not the drawn on yeah. mustache. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course, it reminded me of. You know, later later movies like Blazing Saddles, or even to a much much lesser dis- d- degree, A Million Ways to Die in the West, and it was like, okay, it's your Western parody. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. And for that, it's it's fine. I don't think they utilized the Western setting as well as they could have, mm-hmm. but uh, but I still I generally enjoyed the film. And back to you. I I would say I enjoyed it, but I actually enjoyed it less than At the Circus. Okay. Um, I don't think it's. Quite as good a film. I, it's it's it has, missing a Lydia. It doesn't have Groucho doesn't with have, a hilarious song. It doesn't like have a that. hilarious song for sure. That's part of it. Uh, it doesn't have. It doesn't. I, I don't know. There's element. There's parts of it I liked. There's, you know, there's jokes I liked, and then there's a lot of stuff that I thought was not so great. Um, yes, the Marx Brothers getting drunk. What the heck? That's like any. You know, any the Rich Brothers could do that. Marx Brothers. Oh wow. And you don't even know what the Ritz Brothers do. Yeah, I don't even know. What Maybe their whole act is getting drunk. <laughs> well, we'll find out when we do our Ritz Brothers po- uh, podcast, putting on the Ritz. Oh, brackets brothers. Oh, okay. Podcast. Podcast. Yeah, sure. All right, we'll do that. Now let's go see. It'll turn out there's already a Ritz Cracker podcast, oh. so we'll be stealing the name of. Yeah, uh, that that is usually the way it goes with us. <laughs> so uh, Grocho enters as. S. Quentin Quayle, a name I do not like at all. Oh, why is that? I don't know. This doesn't work for me. It's no Rufus T. Flywheel, I'll say that. Do you think or Firefly. That, do you think that the final name has to have more syllables? It can't be a single-syllable name where it doesn't work. Well, it can't. It can't. Captain the, Spalding. The name to me can, also can't have a joke element to it where it references the fact that he's a coward. So he quails. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Okay. Yeah. Like to me, I don't, don't like that it, it references some, some kind of aspect of a character. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't seem yeah. great to me. So. I do like, I do like the first gag out of there w- with him with all the luggage. And yes. uh, you've always got to change for a dime. And uh, like, no. All right. Keep the, keep the luggage. Yeah. Keep <laughs> the luggage. Like, yeah. They leave. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. I also like it because he keeps it tight. <laughs> yes. It's a good joke. That's like the best joke in that sequence, actually, I think. <laughs> Uh, so Grocho enters with porters, yes, carrying an enormous amount of baggage, yeah. as we said. And of course, they get to keep the baggage. <laughs> there is a large line at the ticket window. See, I, did, so the, I don't like this sequence, this part of the sequence, because there's a large line at the title at the ticket window. So Quail announces that tickets to the West are for sale at a different window. Why not just go to the front of the line and butt in front of everyone like you would if you're going through customs in monkey business, mm. and you just make a fuss and you get in front of the line. Maybe because he did that in monkey business. Yeah, but it's not a great joke. It, okay, me, but you don't want to do the same joke twice, so you got to find out. Well, it's not really the same joke. I mean, you could have him say different things to people who are upset or whatever. Sure. But for him to be like a sneaker and to sneakily, you know, go to another window to get your tickets so I can 
take advantage of you suckers. You know, it's just, uh, Very it just good. feels kind of weaselly rather than, I don't think Groucho should be a weasel. But that's not his character. He's not a weasel. He's but a trickster. He, he does a lot of weaselly things in this film. Oh, okay. And I don't like that aspect. I don't like that aspect of his character in it. So he announces that tickets are for sale at a different window. And of course, the crowd moves over there. So Quail approaches the original window to buy his ticket. He attempts to buy his ticket, but unfortunately, the ticket seller insists on counting his money and discovers that Quail is $10 short. I do like uh, Grocho's banjo impersonation while he's doing it. That's good. The ticket seller then refuses to sell him a ticket because he's $10 short, which is why Grocho didn't want him to count it. And as Grocho is leaving, he is approached by Joe Pinello, Chico, and his brother Rusty, Harpo, and I just have to say this right now, in a bizarrely tightly curled wig. Mm. I don't know where they got that wig from, but why would they change the wig he's been wearing for a long time yeah. for this weird, tightly curled new thing? That we later, once again, uh, reference as red. Mm-hmm. Someone does mention it, yeah. so, so we know. So Rusty, who started with $70, mm-hmm. only has $10 left for his ticket. Rusty tells Joe that he spent $60 on a woman by making the uh, yep. international symbol for woman, right. cur- curving your hands in the air. But I do like that they... I do like that they've done different takes on the mime sequence from Day at the Races. So it's at the circus incorporates it, but differently. And then this movie incorporates it, but differently again, where it's just him saying, and then Chico saying, oh, you bought a snake. Yes. It's good. Joe assumes from Rusty's miming that he bought a snake. A nice, oh, I've already said that, so I won't continue. Quail sees an (laughs) opportunity to make enough money to buy his ticket. He convinces Joe and Rusty that dressed as he is, dressed as Rusty is, he will be preyed upon out west. And it's weird. Rusty's wearing not Chico, not Harpo clothes. He's not wearing a top hat. He's wearing like a derby or something like that. He's not wearing a overcoat with a horn. He's wearing some sort of, you know. But when you see him later in the movie, he's back to his top hat and his overcoat oh. and his, his regular costume. So it's strange. Like, why is okay, he dressed? Okay, all right. Why is he dressed like, just, just so he can be a greenhorn in a railroad station? Is that the reason he's dressed that way? Hmm. Come on, movie. Makes sense. Makes sense, Marks, for their movie. <laughs> um, so they try. So he tries conning them, and yes. they con him. Yes. They flippity do the con. That's right. He wants to sell Rusty uh, some supposedly authentic Mexican wear, or sorry, Western wear, that will so he can fit in. But the thing is, is like when he brings out this Western gear, it's not even authentic in the movie. It's not even authentic movie. Probably, like he's got the coonskin cap, but it has some weird like flat, not coonskin tail on it. It's just like a flat piece of cloth that's been. You know, pinned onto this old. But hat. was the Davy Crockett hat a thing back then, like in 1940s? Well, I don't know. Was that a deal? But if you're going to use a coonskin cap, well, I don't know have... what a coonskin cap was back then. But it like, should have a raccoon tail on it. Possibly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how how, yeah. how those looked back then and, and and the style. But even then, so then he takes out his deerskin coat, and it's like some weird kind of toga thing <laughs> yeah. that he just flops over his head. Like, where's all this cheap junk coming from? Like, why don't have real clothes? Well, come on, movie. Oh, maybe. But uh, again, I look at that stuff and it's like, now that you're telling me that they were, they, they did it in front of an audience, I'm sure they tried a bunch of stuff and this is probably the thing that hit the most. You know, uh, this is, this, this, possible. this is definitely a rehearsed bit yeah. that they've done in front of an audience now that you've told me this. So, uh, what's his name? Quail. You can say Groucho if you'd rather. Uh, I prefer their character names. Okay. I'll be going with the other ones because I can't. I don't know. Rusty Jumper, whatever. <laughs> <in this one. laughs> Quail uh, prices his Western gear at $10 a piece. Mm-hmm. But Joe talks him down to a dollar. He says, okay, but I'll only be making a dollar on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to put this whole act, the whole act down because I do think there's some funny lines in it and stuff like that. There's just elements of it that, that kind of bothered me for some reason. So then Rusty pays Quail with a $10 bill. 
attached with a very obvious black string. Yes. <laughs> you think someone would notice, but anyway, it's all right. Put Quail puts it in his pocket. Rusty pulls it out, and then they count out the change for of nine dollars for this ten dollar. That goes into Rusty's pocket, and they do this for the coonskin cap. They do this for the deerskin jacket. Joe and Rusty feel bad that Quail suspects something crooked in go- that something crooked is going on, and offer to pay Quail with a dollar. Just to make, just to show that no, feel, no yeah. hard feelings. So they pay with a ten and retrieve it once again, <laughs> while Quail is counting out the nine dollars. Then Joe and Rusty insist on paying Quail a dollar for sales tax. She <laughs> said, "I don't really need it," but they're well, you know, it's the law. It's the law. Uh, Quail, by this point, knows that something fishy is going on, but apparently he is too polite to refuse them, or maybe he thinks he'll win his money back. This time, but this, he can't, a con man can't call out a con. I guess that's it. I guess that's right. Yeah. You can't cheat. So you can cheat. You can't out-con a con, yeah. but you can't just go, you're conning me. Mm-hmm. You can you can say it to the side, yeah, yeah. like I'm being taken for a ride, but you yeah. can't do it the other way or it blows all the magic. <laughs> uh, so this time, the suspicious quail balls up the, the ten and puts ah, it into his pocket. Smart. Rusty is then forced instead to cut up most of Groucho's pant leg <laughs> to get the dollar out of his pocket. Harpo does do good uh, scissor work. He does, and it's nice to see him just pull the scissors out of his coat and not ha- <laughs> not find them sitting on a, a desk in the in the office. Quail no uh, Quail knows that he has been fleeced by the two brothers, but he is not worried. He shows him a big wad of cash that he tucks into the, his hat brim. As he attempts to put his hat on, we get a bit of classic Harpo business. As he switches hats with Quail, Quail leaves wearing the coonskin cap. Yes. It's pretty good. Yeah, while well, doing like he's walking for that for that permanent uh, forty-five degree angle yes. for almost this whole thing. Yeah, yeah the full yeah. Groucho. Yeah, it really, yeah, it really exaggerates it for this film. The film now cuts to a shot of a door, telling us that we are at the office of the president and general manager of the New York and Western Railroad Company. Oh, we're gonna get some plot. <laughs> what follows is an unimportant scene with the film's hero Terry Turner. Yeah, played by John Carroll. Yeah, um, and here's is he. Once again, some of these actors, you're like, oh, they did a lot. Others actors, you're like, didn't do a lot. He basically did like a some. He did some movies. He was in a, the Flying Tigers with uh, John Wayne. He did a kind of well-known film called The Letter from Evie. But I thought what he's, I think what he's could be best known for is that he and his wife Lucille, who was a casting director at MGM, uh, were kind of sponsors of Marilyn Monroe when she started to try and start a career in, in Hollywood. Mm. They let her stay at their house. And they kind of were moral support for her and stuff as she was going starting her career. So it's sort of interesting. Oh, cool. So Terry comes in to ask a railroad company who are in the midst of building a railroad. Sure. That's what, they, that's what they do, to be that's fair. What they do, to be, that's what they do. But yeah. I mean, they've if already, they're building buildings, but they're it'd be already very building it. Yes. So you assume that they have surveyed the entire run of the, the railroad. I, from, certainly, I certainly would hope so. I don't so. think they just willy nilly, you know, just do it off the top of your head. Is your, that is not the way to build a railroad. No. That's no way to run a railroad. That's no way to run a railroad, <laughs> sir. What a way to run a railroad. Um, my daughter still says that. I love it. Yeah. Please um, edit that down so it was a lot tighter. <laughs> I will. He would, so he would like, the railroad company, mm-hmm. to change their plans sure, <laughs> and run the line through mm-hmm. Dead Man's Gulch. And they went, sure, no problem. He ex- and then they're like, <laughs> they're probably, you know, these hard-nosed businessmen, they're like, why should we spend more money surveying this place that we haven't seen uh, that may not be suitable at all for our, our railroad? I'll tell you why, gentlemen. This line once belonged to my grandfather, but he hoodwinked a woman I love's grandfather, Dan Wilson, into buying the land. Terry hopes that finally being able to sell this land at a profit yeah. will reconcile the families allowing him to wed his fiancée Eve. So this railroad company 
who, Wait, well, let's just say who answer to shareholders. Well, well, not even that. So if there's one group of people back then, especially yeah. that was the most ethical. Yes, it was the railroad for sure. You're right. Treat everyone fairly. Always treat the workers fairly. Yeah, never sharp practice. That was their that was their motto. That's right. If, yeah. Yeah. Uh, first, do no harm. First, <laughs> always fair trade. That's, That's what right. they said. Yeah. Yeah. So the president, uh, who's played by an actor named George Lessie, what do you? That that just sounds like the most generic name. Yeah, it does. Like, you know, that's, but he was older when he did it. Yeah. He died like a couple years after this movie was finished. Well, so did all of them, really. But it was interesting. <laughs> in the year of Go West, mm-hmm. he appeared in 14, 14 movies, including <laughs> Go West. Isn't that crazy? 14 <laughs> movies. Did probably, they have time for lunch? And here's the thing. He probably sat in 10 of them. Sat in a chair the way he sits in this movie. Hey, I'm sitting in a chair doing this podcast. I'm not throwing stones. And here's something else you'll find interesting. He All started right. as What a, do you mean something else? <laughs> he started... What do you mean? Oh, you didn't find that interesting? I thought that was interesting. 14 movies. You're making some assumptions here, but okay, go All ahead. All right. Uh, he, uh, he started his career as, a, as an actor and director in silent films. He directed a silent film called The Evil Dead. Oh, neat. I thought that was kind of funny. Which later is uh, the name of a horror movie we both enjoy. Yes. And other thing I thought was interesting when I was looking at his uh, IMDb page, because <laughs> that's what I like to do, is he acted and directed up to 1925, mm-hmm. and then nothing till 1937. Oh, what happened in... Uh... I have no idea. There's no explanation. The only explanation I could see was that he... It says he was the first... He uh, played Mr. Archdale, uh, a white character in Porgy and Bess. Okay. Which uh, was on... Was the first person to play that in the in in the, the show was first premiered in 1935 so maybe he had moved to broadway for oh, a while possibly yeah that makes and then, sense yes yeah, so the president is strangely concerned for terry and orders beecher uh, another employee of the train right now wait a second is this one of those uh like uh love trains i've heard so much about yes care about love yes okay <laughs> yeah join hands now beecher is played by our old friend walter wolf wolf king who we know who from he played uh laspari in a Night of the Opera. Very good. The evil tenor. Uh, boo. There's some nice tenors out there. And then there's some evil tenors out there. Uh, so Beecher is ordered to travel out west and meet up with Dan Wilson in order to, to uh, sell this property or to buy this property. We then cut to Joe and Rusty trying to dig for gold in a very, and I'm going to say this again, very unconvincing Wild West set. Okay. With a sign telling us it's Dead Man's Gulch. What it looks like is a corner of a studio that they very quickly threw some stuff around and made it to look. It doesn't look, it doesn't look, it looks so fake mm-hmm. that you can practically see where the set ends on either side of the camera right. frame and on the bottom. It, and it's weird because you think like, how much does it cost to go outside and dig two holes? <laughs> right? Well. Like to dig two yeah, holes. Yeah, but... How much does a grave digger make <laughs> in a day? Pay them. Yeah. And then say, look, I'm. you're going to dig like just dirt. Yeah. Not hard uh funeral dirt but like good softer but yeah i do like the opening joke i like the opening joke of uh digging two holes and and uh, harpo's throwing his dirt into chico's hole yeah i guess if there were three stooges gig <laughs> then there would be three holes <laughs> and more violence i'll say this for the movie they're realistic holes they're not those perfectly square uh grave plots that you see dug on supernatural every darn week Okay, we'll save that for our supernatural. Two cast. guys, two guys with a shovel, okay. somehow able to make a perfect rectangle. Look, okay, sorry to just take a quick tangent. <laughs> they dig them a lot. They've gotten good at it. <laughs> They're good from the get go. How many times? Oh, well, you don't know how many they dug before. Oh, that's then. true. I, All right. Once they again, grew, this, is for, they grew up. this is our supernatural podcast talk. <laughs> we'll talk later. Okay, go yeah, ahead. <laughs> that show naturally super. So, uh, yes, Joe complains that he doesn't feel like he's getting anywhere with his digging. Then Dan Wilson, 
drops by to tell Joe and Rusty that he's moving on because there is no gold in Dead Man's Gulch. Mm. He plans to find a job so he can earn enough to get a grub steak. And then Joe asks him how much it costs, how much a grub steak would cost. He says $10. So they offer to lend him $10. Right. Because they're nice guys. Was there a joke about any confusion as to thinking it was a type of real steak, like a dinner? No. It seems like that would be the place for that for a Chico bit, right? <laughs> In the oldie days, Chico the oldie would days. not have understood what a grub steak was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, because it's grub, it's steak. It really sounds like it's something. But okay, continue. <laughs> this is where, this is where uh, Chico... Yeah. Uh, is the uh, is the angel who will you know even though he'll yeah. con you sure he'll still give you the shirt off his back yes. though it's probably your shirt yes yeah he's, well he's going to give them uh, quails ten dollars yes basically what he's giving them I'm going to give you this money I con from someone else uh, and Dan feels bad about taking this money so he gives them the deed for Dead Man's Gulch as as uh, security for the loan yeah. so Dan wants Joe and Rusty to drop in on his granddaughter Eve when they get back to Birch City. And let her know that he'll be back soon. After Dan leaves, Joe wants to get back to work, but Rusty tells him that Indians are nearby. Mm-hmm. Joe thinks that he's crazy. Ah, you're crazy, he says. That's what he says. But Rusty turns sideways, revealing an arrow. Unfortunately, the arrow is visible before he turns because he's standing oh, at slightly wrong angle, so you can okay. see it from the from the right. Okay. He turns to the left, but it was already visible. Kind of spoils the gag. Not that it was a great gag, but it kind of spoiled it. <laughs> when Joe pulls the arrow out, Rusty's pants hilariously fall down. <laughs> Okay. Right out of the Three Stooges. Okay. I, all right. I don't watch a lot of Three Stooges. I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> I don't know either. I just, I just feel like these jokes are like, like that's the bottom of the barrel. Come on. Someone's pants falling down when you pull it out of their, their bum. Okay. I like, don't know. Does this feel like a Marks Brothers movie? Does that feel like a Marks Brothers joke? If you're watching okay. Monkey Business, do you, do you see this gag in that movie? Uh, I don't because there there wouldn't, aren't any Indians that are there. Yeah, sense. it would make a lot of sense. You're right. Well, I'm not just, quite sure. It's a dumb question. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I put, it is a it is an a full on own... cartoon joke. Yeah. Yes. I put an arrow in. So my this own scene, bum. so this scene for yeah. you doesn't work at all. This scene. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's a big miss. Okay. <laughs> I didn't enjoy Con- it. Continue. We cut to Eve Wilson, played by Diana Lewis. Sure. Here's the other thing I noticed when I was researching the actors and stuff in this film. Mm-hmm. Very few actors in this movie have any experience in, in comedy. Most of them come out of straight drama, yeah. you know, doing like westerns and stuff like that for B movies. Could and, be, and stuff could like be that. for the best. Yeah, they don't want someone who's competing or guess, trying to get a but laugh. You, but you, but I mean, they had Thelma Thelma Todd. She was a comedian mm-hmm. in 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 her movies when she was appearing in Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. So she brought a certain spirit of uh, comedic spirit to the. To the part. Right. She didn't play it totally straight. Yeah, I mean... I guess again, it depends on the role. Again, you want a DeMont who's able to, like, uh, be the stiff that can yeah. play off a Groucho. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes you just... Did you miss Margaret DeMont in this movie? I don't know where she would have come in. You know where she would have been great? Is she... she the should horse? Have, no. She should have been... She should have been uh, this matronly lady who somehow inherited a saloon. Oh. And so... You know, she doesn't realize that Red Baxter is taking advantage of oh, her because she's right. too, she's kind of naive about what's happening. So right. she doesn't know, but she thinks it's all on the up and up, but she doesn't know what the, la- the ladies are doing or what Dan, ba- or what Red Baxter's doing. Okay. I think that would have been a good, I mean, that's where you could have put her in the movie. All right. Yep. You could have. They, they didn't. They, they didn't. didn't they didn't do that. No, anymore. these are all, again, these are all the stiffs. <laughs> these are all the romance. This is yeah, all yeah. the filler. Right. This is the beats in between the music. Mm. It's fine. You know, whatever they are, they're going to do their business and sing their song, and we're going to get to the funny stuff in a bit. Eat that, your vegetables. The interesting, well, I thought it was interesting with Diana Lewis is her first film appearance was in uh, the W.C. Fields film, It's a Gift. Although, once again, that's a movie basically where everyone are, are straight men to W.C. Fields. Yep. So, uh, 
And the year she did Go West, she met the actor William Powell, okay. who's in the Thin Man movies. And they, they, they uh, like within three weeks, they were married. Oh, wow. And he was 27 years her senior. Well, then she had to get married quick because he was going to die soon. <laughs> no, they, were, they were married for 41 years. He died at 91 years old. Well, who was going to know that, though, back then? <laughs> you so. can't predict that. I guess you're right. You still have to rush. So uh, Eve's at home. Uh, doing something. She's pinning a dress. I don't know what she's pinning the dress for. Is it a mar- is it a wedding dress? It's a white dress. Yep. Maybe. We see her wear it once in the movie. Yeah. But uh, who knows? She hears a yoo-hoo outside. And so she runs outside to greet Terry returning from New York. We get some romantic yuck. Sure. And some more exposition as Terry tells Eve, but we already know that a grandfather will no longer be mad at him. Yeah. Once she discovers that Terry sold Dead Man's Gulch for $50,000, which is pretty good. Yep. But we could have avoided the whole scene of the railroad company. But we want to get... We're, this is all filler. You need the filler. I guess. Like, you could honestly have him come in and just go, plot, 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 plot. Sure. And her go, plot, 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 <laughs> plot, 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 plot. And we're back. It feels like you're watching a play and the Marx Brothers are backstage getting dressed and into a new outfit. And they just need the filler time. So they're getting all their clothes on and getting the dressers ready. And Harpo's getting his jacket loaded with bits. And like, okay, now we're now we're back onto them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll cut to the next day. Oh. I think it's the next day. Uh, we're in Birch City. And uh, Rusty and Joe see a man get uh, murdered or shot, whatever, uh, by Red Baxter. He's played by Robert Barrett. Mm-hmm. Outside of his saloon. Joe wants to leave. I like when he says the West should be in the, the East. The West should be in the East. And let's just get out of here. But Rusty is thirsty and insists on going inside the saloon. Yeah, because he was going to drink from the horse trough. Mm, that's right. That's right. Meanwhile, it feels inside, almost like there's a joke there where, like, uh, then the horse, it wouldn't be safe for the horses to drink after he drank off mm, or something like that. You know, he wouldn't care. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. That'd be better. He's the dirtier of the, of the bunch. <laughs> Meanwhile, inside, a man, Pete, played by Mitchell Lewis, who you have seen before, but you don't know it. Okay, is he in this room right now? Yes, he's standing behind you. <laughs> Don't say anything bad about him. Uh, no, he was like, the captain of the Winky Guards in uh, Wizard of Oz. There's a lot of Wizard of Oz business that's mm-hmm. uh, creeping into well, these MGM, films now. MGM, you know. So there's a lot of yeah. The Winky Guards. You know who the Winky Guards are? <laughs> no, I don't. You seem you seem to know. I thought you just uh, well. I've heard. I know what a Winky is generally, but I assume okay. They're, they're the witches' guards. All right. Fine. He's he's the one who says she's dead. Oh yeah. Good for him. There you go. Uh, and and everyone around goes. Duh. <laughs> That's right. The bra- they're not the brightest. They're winky guards. Yeah, we know. They don't hire them for their intellect. <laughs> yeah. They hire them for their... They have the same color I mean, that as... clearly dead witch that's on the Basically, ground. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we get that she's yeah. dead. Basically, their, her hiring practices were, do you have green skin? You're in. That was her motto. Green skin, you're in. Yep. So Pete enters. Uh, well, Joe and Rusty are where he entered the place while they were talking outside. Sure. Uh, he approaches Baxter and gives him a letter that has come via Pony Express. I like that little bit of, uh, you know, Pony Express, a little reference to the West, you know. Okay. We don't see the Pony Express. We don't, we never see anyone doing Pony Express stuff, but nope. we, we hear about it that it exists. We don't need to see it. That, that'd be wasted money. It's a letter from Beecher. He and Red have land they want the railroad to buy, but now that the railroad is going to go through Dead Man's Gulch, their land will be worthless. Doesn't it feel like the Pony Express should have cost a fortune? You got a guy that has to run, like, across the country? We rode a horse. I know that. I know he's. But I don't think they physical. rode across the country. I think they started like at some point where the railroad stopped. Okay. And then they carried it just on. It seems like a long distance for one was, person to have to do. And I don't. And I don't think it was one person. I think it was done in a series of of envoys. Well, then fine. Then or if they or maybe they traded horses. Okay. Them. Very good. But those guys rode like stink in those days. Hmm. They could ride fast. I don't know if you've ever seen a John Ford film. There's some movies where they have like the cavalrymen take off to do something like, and they just ride like 
like the wind cool. so fast and it's not sped up it's not the film sped up it's um, running fast uh beecher wants baxter to get the deed to dead man's gulch so that they can force the company to buy their land an angry baxter orders pete to take his men and continue searching for dan wilson who they've been looking for for a week and still haven't found him huh. that's how mad he is Jeez. rusty is sitting at the bar thirstily watching mugs of beer slide by to other bar patrons I, I like this gag, though. Rusty's mouth is so dry, he's able to light a match on his tongue. Yeah, it's good. It's a good effect. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, Rusty intercepts a mug of beer and begins to drink it, outraging the barkeep. Barkeep is played by this guy named Joe Ewell, who, um, it's interesting because he later on, like the, in the late 40s, he, he was in a series of movies based on the Maggie and Jigs. Maybe, maybe, his first Bringing one was Bring Up Father. Father. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and he looks really like him. Like, if you look at the, sure, the stuff okay. they have in the, uh, the posters they have for him, it was interesting. Joe gives Red Baxter an IOU for 10 cents, written on the deed to Dead Man's Gulch given to them by Dan Wilson. Baxter throws him out of the saloon so everyone can laugh in the saloon. Ha, 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 ha. It's a mean saloon. They will laugh at a guy falling down the stairs or someone being thrown out. <laughs> They're very mean at that yeah, saloon. You're right. uh, but they enjoy a good laugh at a mean thing. <laughs> at other people's expense. That's right. Um, it's an expensive saloon. Joe and Rusty ask directions for Dan Wilson's house from a clerk at the telegraph office. The clerk gives them directions and asks them to deliver a message that has come for Dan Wilson. As Joe and Rusty walk, and I do like this scene a lot, where they, they're not going to read the letter, or the telegram, yes. even though they're really curious. And then, of course, Rusty tries to steal it from, from Joe. And so Joe says, okay, well, we'll open it, but we won't read it. So then he opens it, but he can't resist. We'll look at it. We'll read it, but we won't listen. Yeah. So then they cover their ears and he reads it. And then, and then he admits that he, he read it. And then Rusty has to admit he read yeah, it too. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice little bit, fun yeah. scene, yeah. Uh, you get a real sense of brotherliness there, and I like that element of it. But they read the message, and it, the message is instructing Wilson that if he wants to sell his land to the railroad railroad company to meet the representative, Mr. Beecher, at the train station. Mm. So we cut to the railroad station. Joe and Rusty are there to meet Beecher, who has stepped off the train. As they don't know exactly who Mr. Beecher is, they insist on giving him a white carnation, yeah. taking it out of a lady's hat, and you get a little bit of uh, yeah. Margaret Dumont act, acting there. Why the very idea, she says. Then they circle around, see Beecher, and enthusiastically greet him, Harpo jumping into his arms, which is really great. Uh, yeah, see, there's parts of this movie where yeah, I'm just like, I'm on board for this. Yeah, 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 I'm on board for this. Cut to Groucho. Who, like the train and at the circus, who, like being on the train and at the circus, I should say, has mysteriously arrived in the West, waiting for a passing stagecoach. Seems very odd. He just sort of arrived there. He was put there by the movie. The movie put him there. <laughs> he gets on the stagecoach and finds Joe, Rusty, and Beecher, riding in the stagecoach, along with a mother and her baby, and an attractive woman, who's Lulu Bell, but we don't know that yet. Okay. After Joe and Rusty almost leave the stagecoach when the mother complains of jerks disturbing her baby. Yeah, it's an okay joke. It's an okay joke. Beecher gets down to business. As representative of the railroad company, he offers Joe and Rusty $500 for the, for the land. Quail's ears perk up as he hears this offer, and knowing a good thing, he offers $1,000 for the land. He claims to represent the bona fide oil company. He's got a card that says it. Because they card? ask, like, are, 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 this person's bona fide. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I am bona fide. Quail and Beecher bid and counterbid each other until they reach $6,000, at which point Beecher gives up. There is then uh, some silly business of Rusty knocking Beecher's hat into the, <laughs> the lug, which just felt... Just too sloppy? Yeah, it just felt kind of, like, pointless. You know, like, it's just sort of, I'm going to knock your hat in, I'm going to put it back on, I'm going to knock it off again, I'm going to put it back, knock it off, put it on. Like, okay. I'm going to bet that that worked well in the theater. Like, it's just, it's just a small enough that, uh, mm. that it would work well there, but I don't think it works well in a movie. 
Yeah, maybe so. And it's trying to re- trying to repeat the stateroom sequence, basically, like trying to get that sense of Chaos, enclosed space. Yeah. In a, in a, but it doesn't it doesn't have enough build to it to, for that sequence. It just suddenly comes out of nowhere that Beecher bends down to to get something out of his out of his carpet bag, and then you know Harpo is or Rusty is knocking the the hat yeah, off his head and uh, pushing him fully into the bag, into which the bag seems like, like that. Yeah. seems like it should work better than it does. Yeah, yeah. There should have been more cuts to the to the stagecoach tipping. Yes, and more, and then every time that happens inside, everyone switch positions. Yes, or, that would you know, have been and that yes. would have been better. I think it, like that. Then you build the especially gag. with the baby. There's a lot of things. The baby's in the bag. Yeah, some, that would have been this little yeah, yeah little things like that where you know, and, and that's that's the repeating motif. That's the heart, you know two hard boiled eggs of the scene, and I think that would have been better because the way the sequence ends is it is the the stagecoach is tipping almost going over almost going over and then it just cuts to something else and you're like okay what? yeah yeah i'm really worried about that stagecoach. <laughs> didn't like that <laughs> didn't like what you saw editor so yeah there's some silly business and so yeah as i said a mid-tip so we then cut we cut from uh, that stagecoach almost falling over to quail entering guns blazing this he enters the saloon guns blazing of course he tells everyone to clean out the mess in the gutter there is no mess in the gutter. We'll just sweep out the gutter. Like, yeah. he, says that. Uh, he sees f- former fellow passenger, Lulu Bell, uh, who's played by June McCloy. The thing I thought was interesting was she worked on some shorts in the early 30s, directed by Fatty Arbuckle. Oh, okay. When he directed as William William Goodrich. One of his many pseudonyms, Will Be Good, another one that he, uh, right. he used. And she, uh, she said, I loved working with Fatty Arbuckle. He was a peach of a guy. So it's nice to hear that. So she sees him at the bar. Of course, she just blows him off. When he is told that Lulu Bell is Baxter's girlfriend, Quail demands to see Baxter. Quail is disappointed to find Baxter there and informs him that he should have been at home. He says, the pot of gold called. They want their pot back. <laughs> I don't even know really what that means, but it made it's me a good joke. the time. Yeah. The pot of gold was a radio show that started in 1939. Uh, and it was, okay. a, it was a radio giveaway. It was a money giveaway All show. Right. So it randomly called. They spun a wheel and it would give you... Area, you know, give you the different area code and then the numbers randomly, and then they would call the number. And if you were at home and answered the phone, you got a thousand dollars. Pretty good. And actually, it was so popular it cut into movie movie going because people didn't want to go to the movies; they wanted to stay at home in case pot of gold called. Mm. So it's kind of a funny reference in a movie to have that reference in the film. Yes, even though we don't know what it meant, Baxter takes offense at this and threatens to shoot Quail. But Beecher interrupts. Letting Baxter know that Quail is going to sell them the deed to the Wilson property. Mm-hmm. Well, they're all best friends then. Quail lends Joe and Rusty 10 cents so they can redeem their IOU and get the deed back. We learn that Quail has managed to negotiate a $10,000 payment from Baxter. So he's upped it from 6000 to 10000 Got it. Lulubelle steps out on stage and performs You Can't Argue With Love in the deepest female voice oh my gosh. I have ever heard. Yeah. Uh, I wrote. It was like Froggy from our gang. <laughs> I wrote like, what was that about? Basso Profundo. Is the, yeah. Uh, she's actually a, a contralto. So she's lower than, a, than an alto, which is a pretty deep voice. And it was she was known for her deep. Like she was known for that. She is now. That Seeing that. <laughs> An enchanted quail watches her from the floor mm. while Lulubelle vamps quail monologues to a drunken to a drunkard played by Arthur Houseman, who is pretty much his entire filmography consists of drunk. <laughs> drunk uncredited, that's what it'll say. Okay. I, that was his thing. He played drunks. That was his uh, bit. So it's kind of uh Lulubelle sits on, on Quail's lap and he continues his uh, kind of nonsense monologue that to me recalled uh the asides from Animal Crackers. Where he would kind of step towards the camera and do that. Sure, sure. Yeah. Why you two baboons? Why do you think, you know, that kind of. <laughs> yes. 
we cut from this bit of singing uh, stuff to Rusty opening the cash register. He throws all the money out. <laughs> yeah, I did like looking that. for the deed, which he redeems by dropping ten cents into the till and closing the drawer. Because he's an innocent con man. Yes, he's not really a con man. He's just a. Well, I guess he is a con he man. He is from yeah. off the top, right, but he's right. uh, he's an innocent con man. He's he's, right. he's an honest con man. Mm, I don't think he's honest. <laughs> But he is uh, just, you know, he's got his one goal and the rest, who cares? He will, he will step over gold bars to get the one thing that he wanted and then leave I guess the that's yes. true. I guess that's true. Quail has changed tables so he can intercept Lulu Bell again. She again sits in his lap so he can continue his monologue. <laughs> and he notices that the same drunkard is sitting at the table with him. Quail and Lulu Bell finish the song together, standing on a table. Joe approaches Quail. He has the deed, and they're ready to collect the money from Baxter. Wow, this settles everything. To celebrate their good fortune, so Quail goes upstairs with uh, Baxter and Beecher. And to celebrate their good fortune, Joe plays the piano. He plays the Woodpecker song. And we get, I think, one of the, his best piano performances, yeah, like in great. terms of playing. Yeah, it's great. Because you get the that thing where he takes the orange and he plays the piano with the orange. And I think that's really fantastic. Really, really I just like it. everyone. Like, or if gather, it's an apple, I'm not sure if it's Everyone an apple gathering around, just looking at him and enjoying it. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just but, like, this is just a... A pure bunch of joy and fun. Yeah, that's, that's what's so great about it. So Quail is in Baxter's office, collecting his money. Baxter decides he is going to pay Quail less than what Quail wanted. They go back and forth. Yeah, I like the negotiations on that. You yeah. Know, like yeah. 6,000s. Uh, what was it? The combination to the safe? <laughs> uh, he decides he's going to pay Quail nothing yeah, for the deed. that's how to cut down your expenses. And locks it in his safe. Yeah, that cuts down your overhead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Baxter... Intimidates Quail with a display of his shooting skills and then throws him down the stairs. Well, he, he was walking down the stairs, he trips him. Mm, and yeah. uh, because everyone apparently was looking at the time, <laughs> they all have a good laugh at the guy falling down the stairs. Uh-huh. That's right. Joe and Rusty. No, I did, I, by sorry, the way, I did, I did like the gag about, you know, you see that uh, drunk guy there? You see his nose? Yeah, that's you see the right. fly on his nose? Yeah. Well, you got really good eyesight. He <laughs> throws the gun at him like the good. <laughs> uh, so Joe and Rusty are disappointed to find out that Baxter has cheated them of their $10,000. And Joe sends Rusty to confront him. In a showdown that would normally result in a dead Rusty lying on the floor (laughs) of a saloon, Rusty approaches Baxter until they are almost face-to-face, then draws a whisk broom with a pistol handle and proceeds to dust off Baxter. And and, and Baxter has a good laugh at that. He thinks that's a hilarious thing. At any point, he could have been killed. Yeah. But anyway, Baxter laughs until the whiskey... Sorry, the whiskey, the whisk broom goes off, and all three of them run out of the saloon, which is a very yeah, odd I, end to the yeah, scene. Yeah, the whisk, the whisk broom going yeah. off actually did make me laugh a little bit. It was, it was dumb, but, but fun. I, I, I almost feel like, and maybe I'm just blanking on the big, you know, I think we'll get to how his payoff is working at the end. Yeah. But it feels like there, there had to be something that was like a showdown, because this whole thing is like, I'm great with guns. Yeah. I'm so good with guns, I yeah. can't believe how good I am with guns. So we need something at the end with the guns. Sure. And it feels like... Rusty's thing is it Rusty? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Rusty's thing is he, it, the things he brings out his guns are like a rubber gun or the broom. You one at one point we're like I would I would say and again I'm writing gags now for the Marx Brothers, but like where the guy reaches for his guns and and Rusty's replaced them both with something else, and so he doesn't have his guns because that's the whole thing. Does happen though? What's that? That does happen. Oh, it does. Yeah. Well, that's what I want to see, and I'm glad that it happens in the movie. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. Well, there you go. We'll get to it. Maybe it's not what you the payoff you wanted, but it does happen. We'll, yeah, we'll talk about it, it seems like there. you want the payoff of like the guy who's like sure. such a great shot. Mm-hmm. Something that's his big comeuppance at the end, but yeah. it's just a random thing that happens to him instead. So uh, there's a joke that uh, Harpo made with uh, on set was uh, Buzzell was telling him that he was walking too fast towards towards uh, Baxter. 
said, I want you to stalk slower. I want you to stalk him slower. And Harpo said, I'm not a stalking actor. I'm a silent actor. <laughs> no laughter. No laughter. Wow. From that Brazil. is the coldest shot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, good joke. But yeah, so it's weird they run out of the place. And when I was watching them running, I was thinking, those aren't them. Those are, uh, those are stand-ins running for them. Huh. Weird. Okay. Just the way they run. It's not the way Groucho mm-hmm. runs. Cut to Eve Wilson. What are you, what are you laughing? I'm laughing at that. You're very sharp. Cut. <laughs> Cut to Eve Wilson playing, I think, a harmonium, some sort of a bellows organ that would be like a pump organ that you would play in those days because you didn't have electricity. Singing Beautiful Dreamer in her grandfather's cabin. Sure. There is a knock on the door. She opens it to find Joe, Rusty, and Quail. She's frightened, but they introduce themselves as friends of her grandfather. They are surprised to discover that she is a grown woman. Mm-hmm. They had expected her to be a little girl and had brought a doll as a present. Where a giant keep, doll. Where are you keeping that? I know. It's, it's an enormous doll. Where do they buy it? Eve tells them how happy she is and the good fortune that has fallen in her and Terry's way. She senses. Mostly because Harpo's Harpo's, face, yeah. <laughs> this is pretty much is her open book. Uh, she senses that something is wrong and makes them tell her about the stolen deed in Baxter's safe. Eve is upset but understands that sometimes things don't always work out. She asks them not to tell Dan Wilson what happened, afraid the heartbreak would kill him. But she is certain that good fortune will come uh, her and Terry's way someday soon. A repentant quail decides that something must be done, and has Joe and Rusty come with him. Right. So this was the this is the park bench moment of the yep. film. We're at here. So yeah, they're all they're all ethical, and now they're working together. Yeah, we're that's help this young lady. Right. No more are we going to put ten dollar bills in our pockets and pull them. Yeah, out. you know, you know, you could you could do that, and that's that's all well and good. Mm-hmm. Or you could be just like, well, if uh, if this does happen, I'll cut you boys in. Or like it could be something like that because Quail is a scoundrel. Yeah, you can you can you can play that. Be- like Chico is the guy who will I'll give you the shirt off my back. But yeah. you know, yeah. But instead, it's Quail who does this. Besides, and it's not really, yeah, it should yeah, be Chico. It should be Chico the, that's yeah. that's doing that. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, I'd love to help, but I, I got to go. And and then it's like, you know, we'll, we'll cut you in on the butter or something. It's like, all right. And it's, it's something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. And now we got a motivation. Sure. Cut to Rusty. <laughs> <laughs> now seen climbing in the window of Baxter's office. In the past, when attempting to break in to a place. Which they have done. Harpo is intentionally noisy. He'll go in, he'll play the piano, like a harp. Yep. He'll knock things over. Yep. He'll have some general bit of fun. In this movie, he's a clumsy oaf who falls over and falls onto the piano, makes some noise, and is told to be quiet. They set to work, breaking into Baxter's safe. I do like the the Harpo, who is the quietest guy of all of them, is always the loudest guy when it's time to be quiet. Yeah, I do like that. Yeah. Uh, But I like that he's intentionally noisy because he's just having fun. Oh, we're having fun. We're breaking into some place. This is a real fun but thing to do. But the strong man, he's going to wake up. <laughs> Come on. Oh, Santa Claus. <laughs> Ringing his bell. Yes. I like that they're uh, trying to break into the safe. Mostly involves Harpo hitting himself in the hand with the hammer. Yes. <laughs> so they're trying. They're working to break into a Baxter safe when Lulu Bell and a fellow chorus girl named Mary Lou. Mary Lou? Okay. Played by Iris Adrian. Oh, man, did she have a long career? Iris Adrian. She doesn't have much of a role in this film. Like a like a William Powell uh, lifespan uh, style. Yeah, long she career? lived a long time. She was acting in the eighties. She acted like in the Apple Dumpling Gang. She was in the Herbie the Love Bug. Wow. Uh, now you see, no, uh, no deposit, no return. Okay. She was in episodes of the Love Boat. Wow. Yeah. Love Bug and the Love Boat. Yeah. She was all, all, the full all, love spectrum. All, like that. Too. She was in the Love Mo- American style. Did she do that as well? She was also in the Love Train. <laughs> okay. 
so you know, folks, as long as we're having fun, <laughs> makes it all worthwhile. Makes it all worthwhile for you. So she comes in the. They come into the office. Uh-huh. They're coming in to relax. It's a weird thing. Like, we just come in here and relax. <laughs> yeah. It's well, odd. you know what? What? It is. It's a lot of creeps in this town. It, you gotta like. Right. You know, you're a you're a you're a saloon girl. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have a bunch of jerks yeah. always pawing at yeah. you. So yeah, that makes sense. Yes. And what do you do to relax when you're a saloon girl? That's true. You spend a lot of time on your back already. You don't need to lay down. You want to stand up in a room and drink. Okay. Why do you Why do you whistle? Just was whistling. Okay. Can a guy just innocently whistle? <laughs> yeah, I guess you can. Sure. Lula Bell sees what's up. Okay. And has Mary Lou go Because she can hear through a cloth. Yes, you hear through a cloth. <laughs> through the a thin noi- piece of cloth. The noisiest people in the world trying to work. Lula Bell sees what's up and has Mary Lou go and warn Baxter about what's happening. She also wants her to return with drinks and another girl because the redhead's a demon, which Rusty overhears and is very flattered. I like his little kind of leaning against the safe. <laughs> well, I'm a little demon. Uh, Quail goes to check out, check on who's talking and finds Lulu Bell. He soon joins her on the chaise longue where he is discovered by Joe. Just as they are about to return to the job at hand, Mary Lou returns with Melody carrying a tray of drinks and they both decide that maybe it would be better to work in there instead. One of the girls offers them a mint julep, which when I hear the word mint julep, I used to think, oh, that sounds interesting. But now that I know what's in it, I go, blah. <laughs> what is in a mint julep? Mint and bourbon. Okay. Is that all? Can I just say one word? Blah. Really? Yeah. It's that simple, huh? I believe so. Okay. Yeah. It might have a it might have a mix in it. I, I'm not exactly certain. You, you're going to look it up, right? I'm going to have to look it up because it's the kind of podcast where we do research. Sure, sure. And I, and I meant to look it up actually, but I forgot to. All right. Meanwhile, in the other room, Rusty decides to take a break from hitting his hand with the hammer <laughs> and searches a roll-top desk. The desk mysteriously opens one drawer when he closes another. Rusty soon finds himself in a battle with the desk as he attempts to close all the drawers, only ending when he closes the roll-top. By the way, okay, a mint julep. Yep. Oh, well, that's, you're right, bourbon, yep. mint, uh, but it's also got, like, uh, sugar and water in it, so there's a, sweet, oh, okay. it there's has a sweetener a sweet... in there. Okay. All right, so all right. now we all understand that. Of course, it's an old drink, so it has to have sugar and water in it. And <laughs> by the way, made, if made you're burden. listening to this podcast and you're looking at a drink to drink while we talk about this segment, yeah, yeah. why not get a mint julep? Sure. But please do not share it with Dave. Because he Dave thinks, will say, yuck. Blech. All right. What do you think of the roll-top desk sequence with the drawers? Uh, it's a little predictable. Yeah. Do you know what it seemed and to what be? What was the point of it? Okay. Well, here is what I assumed they were setting up was because, you know, uh, was we shut one drawer and this opens. You shut one drawer and this opens. Then he starts plugging all the drawers, right? Yeah. Like he's like got the chair against it. Yeah. I figured at that point he's going to shut a drawer and the safe's going to open. That's what I thought the bit was going to be. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like he's a, he, this is the crazy world we're all living in. Yeah. But no, we didn't do that. But then we'd miss the, the better. Then the, then the chair just kind of lightly goes flying a little bit. Yeah. And it's like, eh. Yeah. It's all right. It's, it's just like, kind of weird. It's like, what? You know what it felt like? It felt like the kind of bit you'd see in a uh, 70s uh, live action, oh. you know, kind of comedy thing on yeah, Saturday yeah. mornings, right? Sure. It would just be like, okay. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was going to say, something like something you'd see in a Ritz Brothers movie. <laughs> I've had enough of your Ritz bashing. <laughs> I've even... From your podcast, being put off by the Ritz. <laughs> <laughs> Putting off the Ritz? Putting off the Ritz is better. <laughs> Edit it later. Make it sound like that's what we said. You have a lot of... You're going to do a lot of tight editing on this, and I really appreciate all the work. You Otherwise, you're going to make us look like a couple of real boobs. <laughs> so I really appreciate you that a... you're editing this tightly later. You really have And a... also cut this out. You think way too much of my editing. Okay, really appreciate all the work you're going to do later. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be doing I'm that. sure you will. I trust you sure. implicitly. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, Quail and Joe are toasting the southern states while drinking their mixed yes. juleps, which is a good... Yeah, like they're fun, yeah. I do like some. I don't like that they get drunk, but I do like that they're... Because they're not supposed to get drunk. They're supposed to be fooling the yeah. girls into getting drunk, but they're being fooled by the girls. That's not what has happened with the Marx Brothers. It's more like the Ritz Brothers. <laughs> you get one more. One, oh, really? more. one more. Okay. That's right. I gotta use it well. I gotta use it well. I gotta, <laughs> gotta keep it in my pocket then. All right. I'll bring it out at the best, most opportune moment. Mary Lou secretly pours out her drink into a nearby spittoon, but, but Rusty intercepts it with his hat and then pours it into another container and has a drink of mint julep for himself. You know what? I don't think it needed uh, to see the metal thing in the hat. Yeah. You know, it just was like, pour it in the hat. Yeah. Now either drink it from the hat or pour it from the hat into a glass. Yeah. But seeing that the, now there's a metal thing in his hat. Oh, that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Why do I need that? Don't show me what's <laughs> in the magician's hat. Just be the magician. Yeah. There is a good gag in this part, though, where uh, one, of the, one of the ladies says, one mint julep coming up. And Grotus says, what? Before I drink it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. Rusty takes a small cannon out of his carpet <laughs> sure bag. Sure he does. And a keg of gunpowder, mm-hmm. which he, to say to say the least, liberally sprinkles all over the floor. Okay. He then takes out a stick of dynamite, which he places at the foot of the safe and lights it. The fuse burns out, uh-huh. but the dynamite does not explode. All right. Rusty then picks it up, and it turns out to be a very strange party cracker that has a, the explosive energy to open a safe, but also a paper hat that you can take out and wear <laughs> on your head. Which, of course, Rusty promptly wears. Sure. I'm all right with that. Yeah, no, I liked it. Rusty is able to open the safe. Goes uh, through everything. Yeah. Once again, throwing everything of value around. Doesn't care about <laughs> anything except... Yes. He's deed. able to open the safe as Baxter and his men ride into town. Then, he, as you say, he searches through the papers and finds the deed just as Baxter enters and shoots a glass of, who shoots a glass of mint julep in right. Quail's hands, which is another good joke. Uh, less whiskey, my glass can't take it. <laughs> While Baxter ha- has his gun on Quail and Joe, Beecher enters the other room to find the open safe and Rusty gone. Beecher leaves to find Rusty, but it turns out that Rusty is hiding in the roll-top desk in a obvious tribute to the front page. Oh. Because in the, in the play, the, or in the, the uh, murderer who has escaped is actually hiding in the roll-top desk. Oh, very good. The, have you ever uh, hidden in a roll-top desk? No, have you? I have. Oh, how yeah. was it? It was fine. It was like a little kid and uh, mm. uh, climbed to the desk and went, it was oh, fun. okay. Huh. Yeah, sorry. It's a good time. I wasn't knowing I was doing a tribute to the front page or yeah, yeah. to this movie at no, all. No, I you just were. knew I like uh, hiding in things. <laughs> My wife used to, uh, with, with her friends, that they would hide in a in a um, hide a bed. Mm-hmm. They would get into the mattress and they would fold it. Yes, closed. I did that too. Doesn't that seem insane? It does because one time she did it with a friend and her friend couldn't pull it back out, so she was <gasps> stuck inside. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you'd suffocate. Yeah, you would. Luckily, we we're all immortal back yeah, then. Yeah, of course, we we're all William Holden's living to be ninety-one. <laughs> uh, Robert Powell. Robert Powell. Who's William Holden? William Holden is the actor in Sunset Boulevard. Oh, how how long did he live? He didn't live that long because so he was a smoker. Well, but he did li- he did live fairly long. Okay, as long as he didn't die in a couch. No, but he did act in the movie Sob, which is like oh, which is like oh, <laughs> sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's a shame. <laughs> so what are we talking about? The the roll top desk. We got into this big roll top desk thing. Rusty grabs the small cannon and approaching Baxter from behind, sticks the cannon in Baxter's back. Mm-hmm. Baxter drops his gun and raises his hands, but calls for Beecher, who enters and sticks his gun in Rusty's back, saying, telling him to drop that cannon. Yeah, no. Here's where, no, boo to this. This doesn't work I for do me. like this sequence, but... I don't like it. Okay. Here's why. Uh, because it's the, it's the thing about your, your... He's basically Felix the Cat. He's got a magic bag. Yeah. It's got what he needs in it. He pulls out a cannon for a joke. 
that like later on, hey, remember that cannon I pulled out? It's still around. Yeah. And I'm going to use it now for the second thing. Okay. No, that means you really had a cannon in sure. your bag. You should use his horn. Yes. Yeah. Use your horn. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's probably we've Because uh, yeah, you're using an old an old gag. Yeah. No no dice. But you're right. Absolutely. The horn is is exactly right because then you, we have the horn later on. Although they used the horn in monkey business for the same thing. He pretended it was a shotgun. Well, then I don't know what to tell you, sir. I'll keep but it's okay to repeat it in this situation because it's a different It's a different scene. How about this? How about one of the mint julep glasses? Put that against his back. Same deal. Okay. All right. Rusty drops the cannon on his toe. Mm. As Eve enters, sticking her gun in Beecher's back, who drops his gun and raises his hands. Yeah, I, I like all this bit. I like. I don't like that it's a cannon, but I like everyone has a gun. Yeah, and I like it's super up. fast, You put him up, put him up, put him up, yeah. put him up, put him up, put him up. Pete enters and sticks his gun in Eve's back. She drops her gun <laughs> and raises her hands. Finally, Terry arrives. And has Pete drop his gun and stick up his hands, and that seems to end it there. Terry tells Baxter and Beecher that he is going to deliver the deed in person in New- in New York. They all leave Baxter's office. Terry shoots out the lights, which confuses everyone. I have no lights. I can't see anything. Wait, yeah, don't you live to... in a time where you had very little light anyway most of the time? Well, this is the thing. Like someone has to light a match or something. Yeah, so like, yeah. why don't you just walk straight ahead? That's yeah. where the door is. That's the door is. You know where the door is, right? <laughs> and also, there's a window behind you. I'm, How dark could I have it be? No light. They Bax- all have terrible night vision. They've all just had LASIK surgery. Yeah, so that's, that's probably very, very bad sure, light yeah. night vision. Uh, Baxter wants to go after them, but Beecher points out that all they have to do is prevent Terry from getting on the train in the morning the next day. Mm-hmm. Cut to a night shot. Of course, night shot in those days is when you could still see the shadows, shadow on the ground from the sure. sun. Uh, night shot of Terry and Eve riding horses and Quail and Joe riding in a wagon with Rusty mounted on one of the horses pulling the wagon, playing the harmonica, which was an instrument that Harpo could play. It's a mouth harp. They all sing Riding the Range, which I really like them yeah. singing that song. Yeah, it's a nice song. Terry's voice is a bit annoying, but I liked uh, Groucho's uh, counter melody he sang and stuff like that. I thought it was fun. They yeah, sing Riding really, the Range. It Sorry. really feels like a real basic thing you should do in these Marx Brothers movies is like have Harpo play the harp, have Chico play the piano, have Groucho sing a funny song. Mm-hmm. Those are your three musical things. Sure. Make sure you always do that and you're uh, gold. And this was like okay for that. Like it's, it's, it's okay. good to hear Groucho, but it's not. Yeah. Let, let, give me some. Give me Groucho doing a yeah. doing a number. It was still a pretty ser- serious song, but it was kind of fun to see Groucho with his uh, guitar, which we haven't seen since yes, Feathers. that was nice. A pleasant scene. Mm-hmm. So then they stop at an Indian camp. Yes. Now this is a problematic scene, I think, for people, for modern people. I can. S- all right. Let's let's get into it. Uh, as we've said before, with other uh, things, uh, with you know African Americans who are in in, in the thing, uh, whatever you feel about this, you're not wrong. That's yeah. correct. But and and, I, and it's weird because we were talking either on this podcast or our other one. I'm just plugging Sneaky Dragon a lot now. But how Groucho <laughs> uh, in later years talked about how he did not like ethnic humor. Yeah. And he wouldn't do uh, jokes about being Jewish. Sure. And he felt that was very low. Yeah. And so you look at this and go like, are they doing ethnic humor? It seems on a broad scale they are. Yeah. Uh, but are they making fun of, and again, maybe I'm just making excuses here, what the stereotype yeah. of yeah. You know, uh, Indians sure. uh, were then in movies and playing those jokes. It could be that. You know, it's very broad. Yeah. Unlike- and I do like that he says stuff like, you know, when he talks about all the things the white man did to the red mm, man. Yeah. And it's like, we put your face on a, on a nickel and then we took the nickel from you. Yeah. It's like, yeah. that's a good line. There's yeah. like three of those in a row that are just yeah. like, we really screwed you guys over. <laughs> yeah. It's not good what we did. Yeah. You know, we're all right. No, that is, you're right. That is nice. Um, my objection, I, I could see, I could see this objection too, which is the black characters in A Day of the Races and at the circus 
are um they're just people they're not super yes. broad stereotypes they're not it's not full of you know them fighting with razors they do roll dice in one of them which is a little mm-hmm. iffy but you know in day of the races they're just people work at the work at the, That's the circus right. they're they're having some fun they're just doing some after after hours fun with each other you know and playing playing music and stuff like that Whereas this is super silly, very cartoonish. Yep. It's obviously a Hollywood idea of what Indians were. And it's then very that, Bugs Bunny. And that idea is then take, taken even farther. But you're right. It could be, you know, it could be, um, it could be a, a joke. I don't know. Cause there's a one point where the, the chief in his, you know, pigeon Indian says, uh, Nietzsche says the name Nietzsche, like for the philosopher yeah. Nietzsche, which is weird. Like Nietzsche Pardo, he says at one point. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So, hey, point, yeah, Chico's speaking Chinese to him at one point too. They yes. do a laundry joke. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at the tail end of it, I think. I think. Yeah, the things that kind of take a little bit of the edge off it are one, it's so stereotypical that it feels like it's playing off the Western stereotypes. Yeah. But you know, that's still not the greatest thing in the world. But what do you gotta do? Uh, it's comedy. It's big. It's broad. Everything's broad. Everyone's a broad, crazy character. Yeah. Uh, and 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 then Groucho kind of breaking down. You know how badly they've been sure. treated by the white man. There you go. Uh, but then I also here's, like, oh sorry here's uh, okay. the other problem with it the black actors in Day of the Races and uh, Races in at the circus are black yeah these Indian actors are not Indians where I thought like because they do have someone playing you know Native American off the top and and it's yes. like Charlie or something and he's just like just a guy and it's like oh, okay we're not playing a broad stereotype there good for them for avoiding the oh you were saving it all for here <laughs> and now we're we're almost in full Peter Pan right now yeah, and here we yeah. go uh, I did like that because uh, you know I was playing with my little justification theory before <laughs> of how uh, you know the the the, the people who, the black folks uh, could see Harpo as, as 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 something different than anyone else could. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is the same thing with the chief here. Yeah. Who like when Harpo comes up, they immediately understand each other mm-hmm. and they're speaking at a different level and yeah. everyone gets it. Yeah. They get oh, they like get that. him and that's that. like a nice a nice little mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other jokes. And how again, however you feel about these jokes, that's the jokes that were then yeah. and it's the way it is. And if you feel that way, then that's not wrong at <laughs> all to be feeling that way because that is right. Yeah. It was it's mostly, a thing of the thing. It's mostly white actors wearing wigs with yep. headbands. Yep. And headbands were not something that was worn by, by Native oh, no, Americans no, no, at no. all in, 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 no. in the West. And saying you're wearing a They're... chicken on your head to the chief isn't the best yes. thing <laughs> In the world, we're all putting our hands on our desks and just taking a big sigh and just going, you know what? You're right. However, you're correct. No. Let's throw a little boo out there for that. And, and here we go. Anyway. But at the same time, Harpo plays one of my favorite harp solos that he's ever done in this film. Sure. I love the harp solo he does in this film. He, he plays uh, the song In the Land of Sky Blue Water, uh, which has uh, origins in, in a Native American uh songs it was uh, a, a adapted from an omaha love song mm. and so it's written by uh adapted by a, a woman who collected like you know native culture and stuff like that and she would record not literally record but no and or notate or transcribe songs yeah and and so then this guy named charles cadman wigfield took that and he wrote music around it and then a, a woman uh named nell richmond eberhard she uh put the lyrics to it and so Yes, because still it's still sung quite often, even nowadays. Yep, and was a was in a commercial for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Pabst Blue Ribbon. That well, was it, or was it in Hans? the land of Sky Blue. Wasn't it Hans? 
Pops. Okay, it's something. It's some beer. Yeah, it was a beer. Yeah. Uh, maybe it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't Pops. Whatever. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I like the fact that it's played with the chief playing the recorder. Yeah. And that's really good. And I like the kind of building where he's waiting for his intro and Horrible keeps, keeps vamping and he keeps not yeah. being allowed to, to play. That's pretty good stuff. And, uh, but here's the strange part of the sequence to me, this whole part of the movie. It's if you go to IMDb. <laughs> As you do. Which I do because I want to see who played yeah. different parts and I want to check out none of the people playing the Indians in the movie are credited. Not the Indian chief who has a pretty big role. Hmm. No one. It's weird. Not under a different name, perhaps? Not under... No, there's like no... Nothing is written for those characters. Like normally be like bartender, you know, telegrapher, okay. stuff Here's like that. Here's the thing. Uh, you can take things off and it's possible... That, you know, their family or oh. whoever okay. would go like, well, this is my father's career. Yeah. And were he, okay, we we're going to get rid of that. <laughs> and the rest of them are, there we go. Okay, maybe that's yeah. what happened. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. It's I possible. haven't figured out how to take things off mine. And so mine is all wrong. <laughs> I keep adding movies you weren't in. Stop doing that. <laughs> Ian was in that Rich Brother movie. And we're good. I'm good. Done. But I felt then, like, nope, done. That was the no, best place over. to use it. Come it's on. It's over. Admit good. It. There Admit we go. It. All right. It's a good place to put it. I don't need it anymore. I don't need the Ritz Brothers. All right. Stop saying them. I don't need the Ritz Crackers either. Okay. I don't need Fritzy Ritz. <laughs> Next morning, Baxter and Beecher have their men surrounding the train. Mm-hmm. Terry and Eve decide their best bet is to ride to the next station and catch the train there. Quail, Joe, and Rusty decide that they should try to get on the train themselves. They approach the train engineers, dressed as train engineers, okay. and engage in a sword fight using oil cans as swords. Yes. Which is kind of kind of funny. Eventually, Rusty squirts them both in the face, and Quail and Joe are able to tie them up. Quail reads the engineer's manual to figure out how to drive the train. They're able to get the train work, moving after a rough start, but realize that they don't know how to stop it. Mm-hmm. One of the actual engineers tells them, Brake! The brake. Right. After he takes the gag out of his mouth oh, and goes, this is the best gag in the picture. That's a good good yeah. joke. Uh, and that's probably the best gag in the movie, actually. Uh, so Rusty, uh, so break the brake. So Rusty breaks the brake with a sledgehammer. Yeah. They race past the station where Terry and Eve are waiting. They tell them to follow and they'll stop the train. Terry, quote unquote, borrows someone's wagon. I like how he says that. We'll borrow this wagon. They jump into it and ride off. <laughs> Person goes to break his family off the train. His gr- grandma and grandpa go to visit. And then, where, where did my wagon go? And this is where the film gets expensive. Yes. Yeah. This is where you go and, like, oh, I fun. see why they saved money like with those two holes in the studio <laughs> earlier. Because we had to put all the dough into this. Maybe that's where they, that's where they, where they cut corners there for sure. Yeah. So he borrows someone's wagon and he and Eve he- head off in pursuit of the train. Baxter, Beecher, and Lulu Bell are also on the train, we find out. Baxter decides that they should tell the engineers to not stop at any more stations until they get to New York. They discover that Quail, Joe, and Rusty have taken over the train. When the others run off, they untie the engineers and then pursue Quail and the Pinellos. They corner them in the rear car, where Baxter has them dead to rights. But just as he is going to draw his gun and finish them off, the train enters a tunnel. Once they can see again, he draws his gun, and here we go, only to find... That Rusty has replaced it with his whisk broom. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, for some reason, I missed that scene. All right. Very mm-hmm. good. Quail and the Pinellos run out the back door. I like that Rusty takes the time to put a keep out sign on the door before <laughs> closing it. Yeah, it's good. And climb a ladder to the roof of the train. And there's a good bit where the three of them are almost knocked off the train by a signal. Like yeah. a signal bar across the train. And then it swings them in the air and they run along the train and then swings around again. Yeah. So Buster Keaton actually worked on some of the gags that for this movie. That looks so Buster keaton So I'm Except that Buster Keaton would have done it. Yes, he would have done it himself, of yeah. course. Yeah, yes. 
and uh, and he would have done it really well. But it does work. They're, they're well done. And what's interesting about the gags like that, the gag where uh, later where uh, Rusty is grabbed by the male hook, yeah. is that there's no sound. Mm. They don't have any sound for those sequences. It's almost as if they're like, well, these are silent film gags, so let's just ah. do them silently. We're not going to add any I sound. I didn't know that. They don't that. have like That's a slide whistle point. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's so tempting, of course, for people yeah. to put in little, little things to make it. But actually, I remember seeing um, The General... When uh, there used to be uh, Raymond Rohauer's Buster Keaton Festival, it traveled from town to town. And I went and saw the three nights of it here in Vancouver. And uh, they did play the general. And it was a it was an updated version by Rohauer, I guess, so he could renew the copyright on it. And he okay. added sound effects to it. But it actually detracted from the film to me because, every you know, things had like sounds to them. And so instead of just being the sort of, you know, where people are falling and stuff like that, you're just like, oh, they're just falling down. And you add sound effects of people falling. It changes the effect, yeah, yeah. you know, like you don't want to hear someone falling and then bones breaking and stuff like that. <laughs> that's, that's, that doesn't seem, that's not funny. Okay, now that you're telling me that, that does sound like a funny thing to do to a, to a silent uh, film. And just like horrific yes. sound effects, well, yes. of just like that is the funny. horrible injuries they're that going is, through. That is funny, but it doesn't make the film funny. It's, okay. it's a funny gay, right? Okay. Um, now I want to find some public domain uh, uh, old silent films and see, just to add some screams of <laughs> realistic bones breaking. Bones breaking. Yeah. Uh, we, we've oops, done sorry. that, by the way. We've done that in comedy shows where, like, yeah. you take a plastic cup and you and you squeeze it. And it sounds like sounds like bones breaking. It really disturbs people when you mm-hmm. do that, yeah. and uh, you do a thing like you just like move your neck a little bit and squeeze the cup. Yeah. All people don't like it <laughs> at all. Wakes them up though. Yes. If you have an audience that's getting tired, yep. throw that at them. <laughs> Baxter decides that they should detach the car and trap Quail and the Pinellos. But as he and Beecher work to detach the car, Quail and the others jump overhead to the next car, where they decide to detach that car and trap Baxter and Beecher. It doesn't go exactly to plan, though, as they are as they are on the car, they detached. So Rusty grabs onto the other car yes. and makes a bridge. Quail and Joe cross over him, leaving him behind. Yep. Which is strange. Baxter and Beecher also well, I cross. I don't know what you do. I don't know how you free him yeah, from Yeah, I guess that's honestly. true. Well, grab. What do you grab? Yeah. Be hurt. Yeah. It's, uh, be either hurt. way, his legs are going and hitting the tracks and he's breaking <laughs> both his legs. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. You got to wait for him to just stretch out like Plastic Man. <laughs> uh, Baxter and Beecher also cross over Rusty, pursuing Quail and Joe. When they get to the next car, Quail and Joe grab some long, heavy items, and as Baxter and Beecher come through the door, clobber them and lock them in a closet. Sure. I, I, I'm assuming that now is that like the water closet there? Would you say, or is that just a closet closet? I think it's just a closet closet. Would they not have uh, restrooms on a train that's going that long? They must. They must. I'm ass- I'm assuming it's a bathroom. Maybe so. Yeah. Cut back to Rusty. People still did need, need to use the bathroom back then, no matter no, how no. many layers. They not had in the that. not in the West. Oh, not in the West. That no, was an no. Eastern tradition. Was an Eastern tradition of yeah. using bathrooms. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. All we right. adapted that. We adopted that later on uh, in in the West here. You know, now that you're mentioning Little House on the Prairie, I don't remember ever seeing a bathroom. Yeah, no, this exactly. all this all does track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. All the John Wayne movies have never been a bathroom. No, no. You're absolutely no one, correct. No one's going nope, to sorry, I stand corrected. <laughs> yes, you do. That's why he's so mad all the time. <laughs> Cut back to Rusty, who is being stretched out by the train. Yep. He's able to... Pretty good effect. Yeah, it is a good effect. Because it looks really real. Yeah, the legs. It's really disturbing. I don't know how they did it. It's good. Yeah. Yes. Somehow he's able to pull the two cars together Mm -hmm. by doing a bridge, like doing yoga thing, the downward dog. He pulls the two cars together. Meanwhile, Terry and Eve are riding after the train. Joe tells Rusty that they need to pour water on the engine to make the train stop. Strangely, when Joe tells him this, he's sitting in the, like, amongst the passengers on the train. Mm. Like, he's not doing anything. Like, why is he just sitting down then? I'm taking a break. Go get some water. (laughs) 
So of course, Rusty goes to the back to the baggage car where there's like a water jug with a. That's good. With it says a, water on it. Yeah. Clearly, it says water loaded up with water. This is a different one because the first time he goes, yeah. he gets this a small cup of water. Oh. And he runs back. Okay, he's, all right. And he's I'm running getting, along. I'm the, getting ahead of myself. He's running along the side of the train. That's when he's grabbed by the mail hook because mm. the engineer sees him and he starts to come around to get to go after Rusty. But instead of that, the mail hook grabs Rusty, pulls him down to the end of the train where he is then grabbed by the other mail, like the mail hook on the on the baggage car, right. which would normally catch the, the mail bag. And then it swings him into the car, knocking the baggage handler out where he's left hanging on a Got signal yeah. uh, pole. And that's a pretty good gag. And it's all done silently, of course. Lulu Bell unlocks the closet where Baxter and Beecher were trapped. Quail and Joe begin to throw wood used to fool, fool, fuel the engine off the train. The engineers see this and climb onto the tender to stop them as Baxter and Beecher arrive. Joe threatens the engineers with a long piece of wood, so one of them squirts his oil can. Mm-hmm. Quail and Joe duck, but Baxter and Beecher both get a face full of right oil. Right in the mush, yeah. Right in the mush. Quail and Joe jump out of the tender, escaping into the passenger car, while a blinded Baxter and Beecher try to make their way along the side of the tender. Baxter accidentally steps on a lever that sends all the wood and the engineers pouring out of the car, which is a pretty good effect. Yeah. It's pretty good. Uh, once again, and I feel like it's a Buster Keaton gig all, all around. Oh, sure. Because that's a great gig. And it's something you'd see in the general. Like, he must have just been like, I can use gags that I wanted to use in the yeah. general. We didn't have time. This does feel like Buster yeah. Keaton leftovers. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Once again, Quail and... Uh, here's a problem, though. This scene is... So then Quail, uh, Baxter and Beecher then go to follow Quail and, and Joe. And Quail's acting as the as the uh, the decoy. Mm-hmm. And as they approach them, they get knocked out again and put back into the closet again. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, well, you've already done it. Why are you... Yeah. They don't really need to do that. But anyway, they do it. Rusty is this time intelligently filling a bucket with water. Oh, thank goodness. Finally. Again, it's labeled water, so he it's knows. It's labeled water, so he knows right away. But as he walks away, the boxes yeah. drop away. Oh, what, what was, well, reveals, that shouldn't be a problem. It's just a no, no, water barrel. No, no, it's just a water barrel. Yeah, so. Uh, but it's the, on the barrel, it's written, Waterberry Kerosene Inflammable. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Quail and Joe are emptying the firebox onto a shovel and throwing it off the train as Terry and Eve approach by wagon. The train finally seems to be slowing down when Rusty pours his water down the train spout. A huge plume of black smoke comes puffing out, and the train takes off at high speed, also known as undercranking the camera. Yes. So but it still looks pretty good. And I like that he's walking along as it's yeah. taking off. It looks, really co- it looks really good. Again, I feel like if you're a kid and you're watching this, oh, this is very enjoyable. I enjoyed it. I'm not a kid, and I still enjoyed this whole mm-hmm. sequence. I, I you're it was a kid fun. at heart. There was parts of it I thought could be cut out, but that's okay. Uh, as the train speeds along, Rusty kicks at the brake, which somehow activates, bringing the train to a speeding stop. Lula Bell once again frees Baxter and Beecher from the closet. You know, again. why not? It's funny the second time. You know what? Just keep checking there every five minutes, seeing if they're back in there. What they By what? the way, their concussions are now, they're really brain damaged, <laughs> yeah, right? Really At this point, they problems. can't you just do a head shake and like work it off. <laughs> You've been knocked out unconscious yeah, yeah. within a 15-minute period twice. Sure. Uh, and it should happen a third time because it'd be much funnier the third time, as we all know. Yeah, the third time the they're just dead threes. from it. <laughs> the rule of threes. Uh, Baxter knocks Terry out as he climbs aboard the train, and he and Beecher steal the wagon and drive off to get to New York because now the train is it's done for. Sure, there's no fuel. Yep, there's no way they can get the train going. No, it's it's, it's all over. That's what Don't you know. <laughs> because what I was just get, I was just going home. I I grabbed my popcorn and uh, I was leaving. <laughs> uh. Because Quail and the brothers do try to stop them from riding off, but they can't. They just vainly stand in front of them and then hide under the train as they ride past. So now they have to start the train, powering it with whatever comes to hand. Baggage, furniture, popcorn, 
And the train itself. And the train itself as it goes. Yeah, what was it? There was a he was throwing the throwing the corn in. Yeah. What was the joke there? Pop goes the diesel. Pop goes the diesel did make me laugh. <laughs> That's good. Yep. <laughs> Baxter and Beecher have stopped ahead and have sabotaged the track. The train is derailed. Oh no. And somewhat impossibly mm-hmm. begins to turn in a circular in a farmyard. Mm. Eventually driving into the farmhouse on which the unsuspecting unsuspecting farmer is reshingling his roof. Yep. Rusty is eventually. I do like when uh, Rusty opens the door as the train's coming yes. around. He opens the door and the host goes past him. And he opens the other door and it and closes it. Hundred percent Buster Keaton joke. Yes, I mean that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great joke. It's a great gag. And then he's able to lay some track down and miraculously get the train to go back onto the track and yep. carry on to divert it back onto the tracks. To keep the engine going, they begin to chop up the train cars for fuel. I did like that. At one point, Rusty sharpens his axe on the wheel. I did like that gag. Uh, Baxter and Beecher are racing the train in, racing the train in the wagon, speeding as fast as the horses will go. Now the road crosses the tracks, and as they try to beat the train, the horses' harnesses come loose, leaving the the wagon to drift to a stop in front of the train. And then it seems to like hit the tracks and starts to follow the tracks, leading them out onto a trestle bridge where Baxter and Beecher have to jump off into the water. Let me just say, in general, mm-hmm. uh, like with almost all the Marx Brothers movies, yeah. For the last bunch, with the exception of room service, uh, it gets to the point where we're gonna abandon uh, the verbal comedy and all this kind of stuff, yeah, yeah, and we're gonna just do action, slightly funny action, but mostly thrilling action, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's my, I understand why you'd want this in a movie. Sure. I get that this is where it leads to, yeah. But it's at at this point that most of the films lose me because I'm like, eh, it's fine. It's action, yeah, and, yeah. And and I can see action anywhere, yeah. And it's not really what the Marx Brothers do. No, no, best. I agree with you. Yeah, but I mean. Then, but then again, on the other hand, we're unhappy with movies that just end, just end kind of vaguely, right? You know, so I mean, again, I don't you know got where... the, you got like the coconuts where they're it's all just verbal, yeah, through the whole thing and then to the end, yeah. And yeah, you're right, like have a bit of action, but because action isn't the Marx Brothers' strengths, no. Like when we see when we see those gags that you're liking, yeah, you see, we do go, oh, that's a Buster Keaton bit, yeah. Oh, that's another thing. Oh, that's sure. a this. That's you're also thinking, oh, those are stuntmen. Those are stuntmen. That's supposed yeah. to keep met. That's the thing. Yeah. You're not really celebrating the Marx Brothers and seeing the Marx Brothers at their best. You're yeah. going, this is fine. Yeah. And I see how this serves the movie, but it's not as a Marx Brothers, person who likes the Marx Brothers, what I want to see from the Marx Brothers. Yeah. But I understand why this would make total sense as a movie uh, to, to do this. It's just not my favorite bit. So almost yeah. all the movies end with something that's not my favorite bit. Sure. Okay. And back to, back to this. But what's interesting about the scene before we finish it is it was such a Cloud, cloud. It was such a crowd pleaser mm-hmm. that it really shaped. It really shaped reviews of the movie because it ends on such a high note for sure. people, for people who are watching. Understood. Yeah. That they left the theater going. That was a great movie. They just forgot about some <laughs> of the kind of lamer things in the movie and just remembered this great ending to yeah, it. Yeah, that's a real trick for your uh, comedy movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's also a bit. Uh, so if like you got to really hit that note. A more modern it. film. Yeah, uh, would be like a Ghostbusters thing where it starts off just verbal yeah it's all verbal bits and wise crackery and a little bit of physical humor yeah and it ends with like full-on action which is okay yeah uh and makes you go, Ooh, but yeah. it's not them at their best yeah. doing their yeah. best stuff yeah that's yeah right. you're not really it's it, not a comedy movie we've now made sure. an action movie yeah. uh with some comedy elements <laughs> yeah. okay so so they're uh, in the baxter water. and beecher jump into the water and the train oh. the train knocks the wagon off the track and then it this continues into the distance. We watch it go, watch it, this shell of a train yep. with, you know, bits and pieces left standing on the cars as the passengers are standing amongst the remnants yeah. of these. Of the Again, train. watching that going, this is expensive. Yeah. Looks good, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cut to some time later. 
A huge crowd, crowd is gathered and a band is playing. Quail introduces the president of the New York and Western Railroad Company. The president, in recognition of all that they did, gives Rusty the honor of driving the final spike. As Rusty swings the sledgehammer back to drive in the spike, he strikes the president on the head, driving him into the ground, a la at the circus. Yeah, boo. <laughs> yeah, don't like that at all. Well, again, because it's the, it's the at the circus joke. Yeah. Uh, and like, you've got, the, you've got these guys who yeah. we started off with. Sure. They're all con men. Yeah. You're going to be driving the golden spike. Yeah. In. I'm going to, I'm going to give you this golden spike. Yeah. It feels like someone's going to swipe the spike. Yeah. Or something, or it's going to go missing, yeah. or it's going to be yeah. something, then whatever. Yeah. Something in character instead. It's this bit of physical business where, like, it works in at the circus because it happens to Harpo. Sure. And Harpo's magic. So you hit yeah, him yeah. with a hammer. He won't get killed when he gets like, but you've just like knocked a human being into the ground. <laughs> yes. In, in, yeah. a, in a tonal thing, yeah. completely different from the entire rest of the movie. You've just done straight cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. And that's your and that's your end uh, end yeah. bit. So it should uh, have ended with with them going to drive this last bike, and then it's gone, and we cut to the Marx Brothers. Yeah. In the distance. Taking off, taking off with, the, and they just reveal the golden spike in their hands. And that's that's right, and 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 they're and he's putting them in his pocket, and it's yeah. cut. And now Harpo's got it, and it's <laughs> over here, and there's on a string or some other business. And yeah, they're going off, and now they're on to their own yeah. adventures or something. Yeah, yeah, but not yeah. The mayor is now a cartoon who can't be hurt by having his head the smashed. President of the president of the railroad. Yes, yeah. Again, no way to run a railroad. Um, <laughs> what a way to run a railroad. But so yeah, uh, you know, I'll have to edit that part as well. All right. Uh, again, my expectations were low, and I, I still had a good time with it. Uh, nice to see the fellas again. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed them. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not severely disappointed uh, as uh, as I felt I was going to be uh, from uh, rumors and uh, and hearsay innuendo uh, that an innuendo mm. and and side eye that uh, people have cast <laughs> on their later films. Well, you know, I mean, when you're talking with the Marx Brothers, when you say, "Oh, it's not as good as," it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that. You know, they had like a prime period and, and then they didn't. They had right. to kind of wind it down. I mean, uh, Crocher described this film as a turkey. That was his view of it. Hmm. Uh, he was very hypercritical. So, it's okay. So to, how did it do? It did okay. Did know? it make its money back? Yes. It made its money back. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's hard Cause you're actually, saying like people really like the ending. So yeah. it got good reviews. I mean, it got good reviews from trade papers. So variety and stuff like that gave it a good so review. So why was it a turkey then to Groucho? He just didn't think much of it as a as a as a quality. Okay, that was his personal point yeah. of view. But like yeah. the general perception of the film wasn't that this was a flopperoo. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, like you know, so, someone like like the New Yorker, like Bosley Crowther, whoever in the New Yorker, just pointed out that it's not as good as their older movies and blah blah blah. But the um, variety, you know, said you know, boffo ending. Yeah, it's gonna do you know boffo box office. I wonder if there was someone who say, okay, so if you're if you're like a, a, a I don't know, I want to say like a kid, maybe that's not right, but if you're someone who saw this as like your first Marx Brothers movie, and they're like, oh no, their old stuff was way better, mm-hmm. and then you ended up watching Horse Feathers. Yeah, I don't know if you think Horse Feathers was necessarily better than than this, or like the Coconuts or something it would just be so uh talky and plain, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and what have you. Well, like, I don't think people would argue that the Coconuts is is their best movie or better than. Um, but I think. But again, when people say that yeah. the, it started going, it was it was downhill, yeah. and this is well into the downhill period. Sure. Like it's no, it's definitely no night at the opera. I was going to say, but if you or if you like duck soup, it's not that because yeah. it's, it's not that crazy craziness through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I 
you know, my the first film I saw the Marx Brothers in was uh, Night at Casablanca, mm-hmm. which I'm really curious to see because I have not watched it since I saw it as a kid. And I loved it as a kid. When I saw it in grade five, I thought it was really funny and really good. You know, and that's your first exposure to, to the Marx Brothers. So if it is substandard, and I don't want to judge it, prejudge it, because I haven't seen it for a long time, but if it is substandard to, to their, you know, like to whatever, at the circus or Night of the yeah. Opera or whatever, it didn't matter to me as a kid because it's the first one I saw and I just liked Yeah, it's their, the one that's special to you. Yeah. You know, and I still feel the same way about their movies, though. Like, Go West doesn't always work for me, but it's the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. So it's always entertaining because they are so good. Like, they are just so good at taking the material they're given and make it extra better, you know, because they add their own twist to it if they're allowed to. When people – here's a weird thing. Groucho does a variation on the line, like, uh, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever saw. Like, there's, there's does it a, so often in these movies, yeah. But, 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 yeah, like, this is the first time I've heard him say it in the movies. Like, he hasn't seemed to have said a variation on that in the previous films. Oh, and yes, he has. It's sort of in Day the Races, What yeah. do you say? That's the prettiest millstone I've ever seen. Oh, that's the prettiest millstone I've ever seen. Okay, fair enough. Because when people are doing a Groucho impression, yeah. that seems to be... That's, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to be their go-to. And this mm-hmm. was the first one that kind of popped out at me. Sure. Like, oh, is this where he started? Yeah. This became yeah, the Yeah, no, it started before that. And it kind of did become a, an easy go-to for for people who wasn't sure... They weren't sure what to put as a joke, so they just had him say, they say that. Very you know. good. But it starts uh, with the. It started during the medical examination of Harpo in a day at the races. It's like the first time he says, oh, "Okay, that's the grisliest thing I've ever seen." Or whatever, you know. Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, then I'll look that up, uh, folks. We we've gone through this movie ourselves, but uh, that does not mean the discussion is over. No. It it continues, and uh, we haven't. Uh, uh, we haven't mentioned million dollar legs in this uh, in this episode, which is amazing. <laughs> or so, the kid from Spain. Uh, the kid from Spain. We have mentioned Werner and Woolsey, or whoever. That's, that's the main thing I look for when I'm looking through the IMDb of the actress. Yeah, I'm so I'm always hoping that I'll find one who's been in Million Dollar Legs <laughs> or in uh, the Kid from Spain. Yeah, we've got or our, in a Wheeler and Woolsey film. These are all our reoccurring bits. If you've been listening to the show, <laughs> uh, but we love to hear from you because you always fill us in with more information than uh, than we have presented here. Because there's no way. Uh, even though we have talked for quite a while, uh, that we could fill in all this time. Dave is now checking to see if it's been quite a while. Uh, confirmation it's been a while? It's been a while. Has it been longer than the movie? Have we talked longer than the movie? We've talked longer than the movie. There we go. Then it has been But not longer than other shows. That is also true. (laughs) And also not longer than other movies. That's true. There we are. There, there's Andy Warhol movies that are much longer. I think we think we're not longer than Day at the Races. Ah, very good. All right, uh, but we we do love to hear from you, and here is how you can communicate with us. Uh, we do do another podcast called Sneaky Dragon, so that is where we post these episodes, and that's where our message boards are for these episodes. So if you go to sneakydragon.com and click on Full Marks, you will see, or ju- you will see our episodes, and underneath each of them we have a little message area, and we love to hear from you there. And most of you seem to write us there. Uh, but other people like to email, and uh, who are we to judge? Uh, if you want to do that, a Sneaky uh, Dragon's email is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. I always have to repeat it. It's uh, an issue I have. Uh, and we're also on Twitter at Sneaky underscore Dragon uh, and Tumblr, SneakyDragon.tumblr.com. So any of those places is a great place to uh, write us and please uh, fill us in on things. And, and it could even not be uh, information. It could just be your opinion. Yeah. What would you think? Were yeah. we wrong? Sure. How dare you? It's all opinion. <laughs> there is no right and wrong. Maybe there is. Anyway, write us and let us know. Am I wrong about opinion? Are we wrong about everything? Yeah, Whose seems... voice do you like Gee, more? You me really, or Dave? He's really neurotic today. I, I am. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we're ending the show too early. I'm still full of beans. I'll be honest with you, folks. Normally, we drink a much smaller beverage than we did. Yeah. Uh, we normally have like a uh, 500 a milliliter uh, Coca-Cola mm-hmm. that we drink. Yep. Uh, we don't share it. We each have no, our own. Each... We're, we're grown men. <laughs> but today, it was cheaper to get the one liter bottles. Oh, yeah. We've burned through most of them. Yeah. And so, yes, we are full of caffeine we and are, sugar now. We are maybe a little hy- more hyper than usual. We have made a terrible mistake. Let's just say one more thing before we go. Okay. Which is that you can find us on iTunes and you can review us on iTunes. And we really appreciate it if you do. And by the way, time's running out that we can say your name on the show if you do give us a review on on iTunes. So uh, we just want to thank this week. We want to thank Ben Loves Cats so much. Thank you very much. I love cats as well. Do you love cats, Dave? I do love cats. Hmm. I do love cats. I don't know if I put so much. Do you love horses so much? I do love horses as you well. You have a cat. You have... Horses. You have two dogs. Two dogs. You have two horses. Yep. And you have a chicken. And a chicken. Very good. Yes. I love them all so much. So thank you, Ben, who loves cats so much. And then we had an, oh, another review from a listener, CSR1967. Oh, that's a good year. And they liked the show. They thought it was a bit too long. Oh, um, well, for them to listen to, they didn't have the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I don't either, but I'm here. <laughs> you don't have the time either. Yep. I know. I keep you, I keep you away from your busy life. Oh, that's okay. And I don't know if we thanked Baby Fett as well for uh, their review. So we appreciate we appreciate all of you mm-hmm. uh, taking the time to 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 uh, tell us what you think of the show. Do you think Baby Fett is a Star Wars reference? Is that Boba Fett, but it's Baby Fett? No, no. What do you I think, think Baby Fett is? A reference to the cheese. Oh, very feta, good. Yeah, feta cheese. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, it sounds like Baby Fett as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh? Could there's be. lots of things. Sure. You're right. But I don't think it was. I don't think of it as a Star Wars reference. I think that's very strange that you would connect the two, like Boba Fett. Hmm. Huh. It's weird. All right. Well, we'll talk about it in our Star Wars podcast. Yet another Star Wars podcast. <laughs> Let's go. We'll go see that one. <laughs> and if you think Dave complains about the Ritz brothers a lot on this one, yeah, boy, you should listen to that one. On our Star Wars second. Ugh. Oh, is that right? We watch a second of Star Wars, then we comment on it. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's... Too loud is usually Dave's. <laughs> response for that well i'm an old man that's okay get out of my backyard that's fine get out of my front yard of course you are get out of my yard we're doing a marx brothers podcast of course we're old (laughs) come on we're not pushing away the youths to do this nonsense anyway it's true there's people saying this is too long. They can't stay up that late. <laughs> they got to get to bed. That's true. Sleepy, sleepy you're right, times. You're right. So the long and the short of it is, thank you for your iTunes reviews. All right, and we we're gonna appreciate it. And uh, this episode is a little shorter than our normal one, so yeah. we're listening to your notes. That's right. We're taking your notes. That's right, and we're talking now uh, so much about those notes that we're breaking those <laughs> notes, and it will make it as long as you didn't want it to be. <laughs> We'll take it and break it. That's right. Thank you so much for listening. I've been uh, Ian Boothby. And I've been David Dedrick. All right. And if you want to listen to us more, Sneaky Dragon. Bye. We'll see you next time with The Big Store. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, Dave Dave is correct in that. Mm